this particular gang attacked my pub. 37 of them armed with a handgun. 37 of them? 37 of them, Sean, yeah. 37 of them armed with a handgun, a shotgun, hatchets and machetes. I was sitting in the ward in the hospital and two family members of the gang that had attacked me, they weren't in the attack, walked past me in the hospital ward and put their fingers to my forehead as if they were shooting me in the head. So I've stood up, I've knocked both oh, of them out, shit. badly wounded. This is fact, I'm not making this up. Yeah. Right? I've knocked both of them up, I've picked up a stool, the sailing the people, they're in their hospital ward. I didn't know who I was surrounded by because the people that had attacked me wore balaclavas and masks. And when we went into the hotel, Mike Tyson said, Joe, any more trouble at your pub and I'm landing. <laughs> <laughs> These people that worked me on the... Wow. 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 Mike knows about this. I said, yeah. of course he does. He's my boyhood friend. They said there's a young heavyweight in the Catskills called Mike Tyson looking for sparring partners. 17 years of age, same age, actually six months younger than me. Mm. I was so happy to hear this because I've been fighting men because I was big for my age, but I hadn't got that man strength. I was on the doors when I was 15. You know, I, I felt in my mind I was a big man. I was a mature man. I wasn't. I was still a teenage boy, but I was fighting men. But when I heard Mike Tyson was similar age to me, as it turned out, six months younger than me, I'd never knew who Mike Tyson was. He was knocking out men left, right and centre. I didn't know this. So when I got to the Catskills, I met Cos, God rest him, and Marnie and Camille and Tom Patsy and Jay Bright and a few of the other people that were there. And then I met Mike. Mike was smaller than me, younger than me. And he spoke with a little bit of a lisp. So I thought, I'm going to batter you. Was I wrong? Big Joe Egan is here. Finally, we have been trying to get Joe in for a couple of years now. Wildman was so looking forward to meeting him, but sadly, Wildman passed last year. R.I.P. Wildman. And uh, it's a hell of a story. He has recently been on the Michael Francis channel. Uh, we'll ask him about that in a second. But we're talking like um, gun battles, Mike Tyson's former sparring partner. Tyson said he was the toughest sparring partner he ever had. He's been shot multiple times. It's going to be action-packed, folks. We've also got Jen here today of Boomer and Jen Organic Cotton Clothing, and her links will be in the description, as will Joe's links will also be in the description if you want to support their work. So just to start out then, Joe, huge thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Sean, Jen, thank you for having <sighs> me to be on here. Thank you very much. Yeah, how was and it? God rest your friend. Yeah, he's over yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> how was it um, getting interviewed by Michael Francis? It was... What a it, gentleman, eh? Oh, what a lovely man. Yeah. I only watched him on Netflix uh, about three or four weeks before and I'd watched the big mafia programme and my sister's married to a, an ex-policeman in New York, a guy called Joe Marcatelli. He's of Italian descent. And I've met lots of Joe's family over the years that they've been together. You know, and some of Joe's family are, are heavily involved with the mafia. Some of his family are heavily involved with the police. But that's the way it is with the Italians in America, you know. And uh, I had a fascination with the mafia. When I lived in New York, I lived in a place called Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. And it was only... 20 minutes, 15 minutes from Bensonhurst where John Gotti had his stronghold and I met a lot of guys in around Brooklyn that were connected 
very dignified, very civilised. You know, obviously people that you wouldn't want to cross, <laughs> you know, but uh, they have their code of honour. And um, when when a friend of mine, Reese, gave me the opportunity to be interviewed by Michael Francis, I dived on the opportunity because I thought this is a, a great, 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 great guy. Because after watching him on Netflix, he had a fantastic, fascinating life and a fascinating story. So I was always I uh, chuffed to bits to be interviewed by him. When I spoke to the man, and a um, very dignified man, obviously a non Doesn't swear or anything, does no. he? No. Yeah. You know, very dignified, very suave, very, um, just very cool. And looks young for his... 70 years of age. I can't believe he said he was in his 70s. 70 years of age. Oh, so high 50s, 60s. 70 years of age, you know, and uh, I'd say he's had a stressful life, mm. you know, so obviously as an age from stress, you know, mm. he's, uh, he's aging very, very well. He looks really well. Mm. But I suppose in the line of work that he's been in, he's probably happy to be aging. Some of them don't get to age. They get took out very young. But um, yeah, he was a fascinating character. It was so lovely, so lovely. And then a few weeks after that, he interviewed Mike Tyson and Tom Patty, who we go back many, many years, Tom and Mike. You know, when I was in the Catskills with Mike, Tom was there, he was a great fighter. And um, they spoke about me. And Michael Francis was having a chat to Mike and uh, he said I had Joe on the show a few weeks ago. Oh, Mike got all excited and it was lovely to see. <laughs> it was lovely to see. But he, he's um, he's a really lovely man, Michael Francis. You know, I kept in touch with him. Um, he sent me across his number. I've been texting a bit. And I have a pal of mine who uh, is talking about bringing him over to do some after-dinner speaking events. They, they, they'd spoken to each other last year before the COVID, the beginning of last year before the COVID. And um, it was, the wheels were in motion, but then the COVID came, mm-hmm. so then it stopped. So my pal contacted me, he said, Joe, I saw your interview. He said, I'm going to resurrect this uh, this uh, emailing again. And I said, well, I've got Michael Francis' personal number. I said, he gave me his personal number. I said, let me text him and see if I can give it to you. So I texted Michael and I said, my friend, who is an ex-boxing promoter, I said, I worked for him when he'd done shows in Ireland. I said, he's, he said, he's been emailing and looking to bring you over. He said, yeah, he says, Cass, that's the chap's name. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, please put him in touch again, Joe, he said, and uh, let's make it happen. So it looks like, it looks like maybe early next year he might be coming into the UK to do some after-dinner speaking events, which will be great. Fantastic. You know, because yeah. I'll get onto the tour with them. And then uh, to meet the man in person, like I said, I've only met him over over the over the internet, mm. doing the talks and been chatting over the phone. But if he gets onto some of the chat shows here, you know, the Jonathan Ross show or the the Graham Norton show, he will be such a guest, fantastic guest. And then the other mafia go-to channel right now on YouTube is Sammy the Bull. You've been watching any of his stuff? <laughs> he was interviewed by Michael Francis. Was Michael he? Francis, Valuetainment yeah. channel, Patrick. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they, they I haven't seen. I've yeah. read the. I've, read I've watched some like of the teasers for it. They're building yeah. it up. Uh, it, I don't think that's the full thing going out yet. I'm not sure. I don't know. I've been I watching the teasers, but yeah, and like Sammy's yelling at Michael, and Michael's <laughs> up, yelling yeah. for him. Sammy's like, "Alder, <laughs> <getting> all aggressive." <laughs> were, they, were they arch enemies? Um, so it was the Gambino crime family, wasn't it? Versus, I think what's happened is. As these guys have got on YouTube, both have said different things about each other yes, and each other's friends. And some of that's caused the dissension and beefs. It's, it's mostly internet beefs, I think. I don't think they were enemies back in the day. I'm not 100% sure. 
because they were separate families and the families yes. get along through the council and all that stuff. But I think it's to do with what they've been saying online that's created these beefs. Not more podcast wars. Yeah, the ma- all the mafia, po- <laughs> all the US mafia podcasters right now have got their own podcast war going. Oh, wow. War of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a better way to be than war of words. Rather than going in the war of bullets. (laughs) You can can go back for the war of words and go and put your head in the pillow. So have you watched some of Sammy's stuff? He's a great storyteller. Do you know something? The lives they've lived. Yeah. The lives they've lived. If they're able... I notice there's... uh, They can't tell the full truths. Mm. They've got to sort of twist the stories because... Obviously, there's been fatalities in their lives, and the they, they, the families of some of the people that have died through the through the mm. through the through the uh, wars with the the different families, they have to still respect the families that are alive, mm. you know. So they can't sort of they've got to uh, they've got to tone it down a bit. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, um, but I bet it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. yeah. <laughs> I love the mafia films on television. What were your favourite movies? movies? Good, good films. Oh yeah. Any others? Yeah. Casino. Uh, oh, I love Casino as well. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know I love Joe Pesci? I think he's great. Yeah. He plays, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. is so versatile mm. as an actor. Mm. He can play a nasty piece of work mm. like in, 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 in Casino. And then when you watch him in My Cousin Vinny, he's so funny. Mm. He's so mm. versatile as an actor. You know, he's Definitely. brilliant. What about Harvey Keitel? Brilliant. Bad Lieutenant. Brilliant, brilliant yeah, actor. I, yeah. I got to, um, who did he, was? what was the film? Did he do... Um, was a Pulp Fiction he done? Oh, I love Pulp Fiction. That's was my favourite. Harvey Keitel and Pulp Fiction. Mr. Wolf, wasn't he? He came up and did the clean-up. Yeah. Yeah. Does he do... What's the advert on television? It, the plumber. Is Harvey Keitel doing the plumbing advert? Oh, I can't remember. I think it's Harvey Keitel, because yeah. I've done the cast. I've done an audition yeah. for that advert. Did you? I got to the last two. Yeah. And my friend Adam Fogarty, he got the part. Mm, right. And they said, um, Adam's playing the... Adam's a good actor. He's yeah. ex-boxer as well, ex-rugby star. And we sparred together in America with Mitch Green. Adam was over sparring in Gleason's as well. He's from Halifax. Fantastic. I played Gorgeous George in Snatch. He's done loads of films. But I lost out to him in the, um, in the Churchill ad. Mm. The Churchill ad? Yeah. 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 What, the nodding dog? Yeah, yeah. Can you do it? I didn't even get a, I didn't even get a look in. He got the part anyway. And... <laughs> But when we did the, I think it's direct line, mm. the direct line, I think it's Harvey Keitel, but I got to the last two. So Adam beat me again, <laughs> right? Mm. So when I texted Adam, I said, Adam, it was great to see you and I look forward to seeing you again soon, but not on an audition. You beat me twice. <laughs> I don't want to see you again on an audition. We laughed about it, but he played, um, there's a big leak in the bathroom and then I think it's Harvey Keitel. I'm, I'm 99.9% sure it's Harvey Keitel. And, um, Adam Fogarty walks in with with and the leaks going on. He says, hey, "Joey here, sort out the leak." Sort of, you know. So it's, 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 it's but I'm sure it's, it's sure. Harvey Keitel. He was doing the direct line adverts, was he? I'm not sure because I don't watch much TV. Oh, I just remember him all the classic gangster oh, movies. Have you ever seen the Churchill ad? No, it's not as a, it's a direct Bulldog. line. Oh, oh, I it... lost the Churchill advert. I, I, I didn't even get a look in for that. Mm. I lost that, but Adam Fogarty got that. But the direct mm. line, I got to the last two. Mm. And when when um, I, I, I done the, the casting and then the casting agent called me back. They said, the director wants to see you and it's an American director. So I've gone in and he's, he looked at me, he said, Joe, do you get typecast? I said, how do you mean? He said, well, do you get to play the tough guy, the, the heavy in a lot of things? I said, I do. 
he said, well, we want somebody to look tough, but he said, we also want them with a bit of a soft demeanour. He said, you don't have that soft demeanour. <laughs> he said, you look too menacing, you know. Now, Adam's six foot five. He doesn't have a soft demeanour, but he played the part better than yeah, I would have because yeah. he's a better actor than me. Mm. But uh, it was still nice to get <laughs> second. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I got second. Yeah. So I lost, and I lost to my pal, which wasn't too bad. Mm. But I do love the American gangster films. Yeah, yeah. classics. Oh, classics. Great. Even the old ones. Yeah. You know, the old James, Cag James Cagney, Cagney films. Yeah, all, yeah. You know, <laughs> I just think they're great. You know? So, Joe, for people who are not familiar with your story, then, how did this all begin? I mean, I've watched some of your interviews, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite aware, but for the viewers who are not familiar. Well, my background is boxing, and I started boxing. At a young age, at 10 years of age, had my first fight at 11. Was that in Ireland? Yeah, in Dublin, yeah. I Dublin. boxed Steve Collins. He went on to win two world titles. So Steve was 12 and a half when I boxed him. I was 11, he battered me. But that year and a half makes a difference when you're 11. Yeah. And I went home, I cried for weeks. But it either makes you or breaks you. I could have stopped, mm. but instead I got, I got determined and I thought, mm. I'm going to get better and I'll box him again. Years later, I boxed him again, but he beat me again. But he didn't beat me as bad as he beat me the first time. <laughs> you know, so I've learned, you know, and uh, he went on to win two world titles, the middleweight and the super middleweight champion of the world. So it was no disgrace losing mm. to the man. He's my friend. But uh, I started the boxing originally because I was getting bullied. I got bullied as a mm. child. My dad worked on the building sites in the UK and we came over to visit. I'm the eldest of seven. I've got four younger sisters and two younger brothers. So when I came to the UK to visit my dad, I got bullied because I had the Irish accent. So I picked up the English accent to try and mix in. And when I went home to Dublin, I got bullied in Dublin because I had the English accent. So I've experienced a lot of bullying in my life. Mm -hmm. But all my years boxing, I only ever had one tooth knocked out. I got two teeth knocked out in Manchester the day I made my Holy Communion. The bully boys tried to take my Holy Communion medal, held on to my medal, and they knocked out my two front teeth. One tooth only in boxing. So the boxing ring was probably quite safe for me, even though... <laughs> Even though you're in a fight, there's only one man you're against. If that man is Mike Tyson or Lennox Lewis, it's still only one man. When I got beaten by the bullies, I got beaten by gangs and I got beaten with sticks and rocks and you name it. I got, I've been hit with a scaffolding poles. I've been oh, stabbed wow. a few times. I've been shot a few times. But I've had to deal with bullies all my life. And the boxing gave me the, the strength and the courage to stand up to the bullies. And that's why I started boxing, really. My dad encouraged it and when when the bullies hit me as a child when they'd finished beating on me rather than them hit my brothers and sisters i used to jump back in and say don't hit them continue to hit me mm. you know and it got to the stage where i could absorb punishment like a sponge you know from the kickings and the beatings that i took so when i was in the boxing ring i could i could withstand a lot of punishment you know i have been battered i got i got battered in the boxing ring but i went in with the intentions just to learn how to fight and defend myself. I never thought I'd win an Irish title. I went on to win seven Irish titles, which was a major achievement. And I, I got to go to America. I boxed in America in Atlantic City when I was 17. And I boxed a big Marine sergeant. He was 28. He was a mature man. I'd left school when I was 14. I was on the doors of nightclubs at 15. And I was what was school like for you? It was hard because I'm not very academic, you know. Right. I, 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 I've got, um, I'm street smart, you know, because I've, 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 like, I've, I've grown up like looking after my brothers and sisters and ducking and diving. But as far as books and things and Pythagoras's theorems and stuff like that, <laughs> I was never, never good. But my sister, my middle sister, 
Maureen, she became a chartered accountant. So there is brains mm. in the family. Very proud of her, like, you know. But uh, me, I wasn't, I wasn't academic. And I really believed, even at 14, I thought, I'm going to make my fortune with boxing. I thought, I don't need to be academic, you know. I'll make my living, I'll make my fortune. I dreamed about becoming a champion of the world. I think every boxer that steps into the ring, male or female, dreams that dream. Only a certain few get to live the dream. I wasn't good enough to win a world title. Like I said, to win seven Irish titles was a major achievement for me. Mm. But I shared the ring with lots of world champions and it was an honour to share the ring with them because I always maintained, if you're going to get battered, you might as well get battered by the best. I got battered by the best. I got battered by Steve Collins. I got battered by Mike Tyson. I got battered by Lennox Lewis. But they're great, great, great boxers, you know, mm. and great guys into the bargain as well, you know. I'm proud to say they're my friends. And boxing, first and foremost, gives you self-respect and it gives you respect for your opponent. And that's such an important thing in life is to have self-respect and respect for others. And unfortunately, in this day and age, there's, there's, there's not enough respect out there. People, people are disrespecting people every day of the week, mm. every moment of every day. And it's sad, sad to see, very, very sad to see. But boxing, boxing, to me, is the greatest sport in the world. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't get enough recognition for what it does for young men and women. People say boxers come from the gutter. I don't like using that terminology. Boxers come from very, very humble beginnings. You know, boxing, basketball, and soccer—probably three of the sports where young men and women come from the street and they they get an opportunity to make a better life for themselves. And boxing has made such great lives for people that, in other ways, would have nothing. Yeah. You know, and I just love the sport. I love the sport. I love what it's done for men and women, giving them the opportunities. Even at Tyson Fury now. Tyson Fury now is a young man that's a traveller that's probably had it hard through his life. And twice as hard because he suffers with mental health. Now he's the pinnacle, top of the tree of his sport, you know. And he's now helping so many people in the mental health. He hasn't forgot where he's come from. No. Amazing guy. You know, yeah, I love the man daily. I love the man daily. I love that he was out yeah. with friends of mine today. His wife, Paris, has a new book out and he was doing a book signing today. And my friend, Paul Higgins, who I worked the doors with a lot of years ago, was the bodyguard there looking after mm. Tyson and his wife. You Does know. he need looking after? Do you know something? <laughs> years ago, it's funny you say that, Jen. I worked in Dublin Airport. I could never understand because I do security. I've worked security all my life, like I said, I was on the doors of nightclubs when I was 15. I've done static guard, store detective, bodyguard, doorman, air marshal with Delta Airlines. I was in the part-time army and on in the FCA and the military police. I've done every type of security work. And when I was younger, you look at some of these powerful men having bodyguards. You know, I watched Frank Bruno walking through Dublin Airport one day. I was working in Dublin Airport. And he walked through Dublin Airport. And he was... British heavyweight champion, a powerhouse of a man. And he had bodyguards with him. And I just think, why does a man like him? Even though I'm doing the security work, I still question, why does a man like him need bodyguards? But then you look at society and you think, society is full of sometimes idiots that want to play up to the cameras, play up to these, these fighting men because they want to test themselves against these fighting men. So really the bodyguard mm. is protecting them idiots, not protecting Frank Bruno, but protecting 
the idiot because if Frank Bruno was to land a shot or a punch on one of the media's jaws, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be counted one, two, three, they'd be counted Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, yeah. you know, so it's, it's protecting them. So that's what the bodyguard sometimes is doing, yeah. he's protecting Joe Public from the mm. man or the woman, because some of these women fighters, Katie Taylor, Leila Ali, to name just two, mm. Jane Couch, oh my God, you know, these are fighting women. These could take out men with a punch. Yeah. You know, so the bodyguards are protecting them idiots from these yeah. fighters. So growing up in the 60s and 70s then, what struggles did you and your family, I know you got a lot of siblings, go through? Now, we had some hard times. You know, when you've got... My dad's a working man. I was born in 1965. And it was, it was hard for my mum. You know, my dad was away working in the UK. She came to visit him in the UK... She went to visit him in America when he worked in America. But Ireland's greatest export has always been its people. You know, we've gone all over the world to work. We've never gone to invade. We've never attacked other countries. You know, we've gone to work. And people are happy to see the Irish, you know, because we bring, we bring the humour, we bring the fun. A lot of the Irish drink. I, I'm an Irish man that doesn't drink alcohol. People <laughs> say, what sort of an Irish man are you that you don't drink? <laughs> My dad says I'm a failure as an Irish man. It's oh, expected no. <laughs> the paddies to drink. But when we were kids growing up, we had hard times, you know. But hard times make you appreciate good times. You know, I'm in a great place in my life now. And I've had some great times over the years. And I think experiencing them hard times really did make me appreciate some of the wonderful things that have happened in my life. But um, What jobs did your parents do back then? My dad's a concrete worker. He's, he's, he's um, a construction man. You know, he's worked all types of construction, but he's a, he's a concrete worker, you know, building the concrete columns and stuff. He's worked on skyscrapers in America. He's worked on... Bridges and dams, and uh, that was his that was his uh, expertise in the concrete business. He's still alive now, eighty four. Okay. Still a fit, powerful man. The dementia's hitting him a bit mm. now. Like you know, he's he struggles to, to. Sometimes he doesn't know who I am, you know, and that's that's quite heartbreaking. Some days we have him, some days we don't, you know. But the fact is that he's still alive. He still looks good, you know. His brain isn't all there, but. Um, He's still here with us, you know, and God rest the people that have, that have passed through COVID. Like there's been a lot of people died through this last 18 months mm. and God rest them. I'm, I'm happy that I've still got my mum and dad, you know, yeah, one's definitely. 81, one's 84. But uh, he was a physical man when we were growing up. We didn't have a lot of time with him, Jen and Sean. We had um, years where we might only see him for two months of the year. But for them two months of the year, he'd spoil us, mm. you know. But he always sent the money home. Like I said, Ireland's greatest export's always been its people. The dads would go away to work. They'd send the money home for the mums to look after the kids. And I had to become the man of the house when, 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 when I was sort of old enough and, you know, make sure my brothers and sisters were okay because my dad was away working. But uh, we never went hungry. We never had a lot. You know, I would talk about it to people today. A chocolate biscuit in our house when I was a kid was a rare luxury, you know. Mm. And I see chocolate biscuits now on tables all the time in people's houses. It's not mm. a luxury anymore. No. You know, and even even in hard times, you can buy a packet of chocolate biscuits now, 25, 30 pence. That was a luxury in our home when we were growing up, a chocolate biscuit. And um, bread and potatoes, my mum could do, oh my God, beans. 
She could do amazing things. She was doing curry beans long before Heinz was doing curry beans. Wow. You know, my mom could do a treat with beans. We got beans on toast, beans beside toast, beans without <laughs> toast. You, know? <laughs> you would run a fart in our house. You a match. You lit a match in our house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, imagine how it with the fat with the beans. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, yeah we we had we had, uh, we had, uh, we had. Did you have a bit of cheese on the beans at least? Oh, she done that as well. Yeah, she done oh, the cheese. Oh, cheese. You know, we had I cheese. Like we had. Uh, <laughs> she done loads of things. You know, sometimes if if there was a few pop there, if there was money there. She did a bit of Worcester sauce. Oh, that's the truth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I Worcester like that. sauce. We had HP sauce. She would do loads of different <laughs> daddy sauce. Yeah, she done loads of different ways with the beans. Like it was like an adventure. Check out Joe's bean yeah, recipes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had beans, beans on toast one morning, and then egg on toast the next morning, like soldiers. Oh, we had that. Yeah, we had that. Yeah. We had that. But there was always bread. There was always yeah. bread. Sometimes there might not be butter, you know, but mm. there'd be always bread. And um, I have a good friend of mine in Ireland. Uh, he went out to win a world title a fighter called Jim Rock, and he's one of thirteen children. And for years, he had no butter on his bread. Because they couldn't afford the butter on his on the bread with thirteen kids, we were bad enough with seven, at thirteen. So we had harder times than us. It was a lot worse off than us, and probably worse off than the rocks. But still, to this day, he doesn't take butter on his bread because he grew up with no butter on his bread. <laughs> it's we amazing bread. butter on bread. Mm-hmm. You know? I can't live without it on my toast. But sometimes we didn't have it, like you know, do we, yeah. you know, every every now and again, you'd have a bad patch, you know, yeah. and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the luxuries. And butter was a, a, a when I was a little boy, butter was a luxury. You know, and chocolate biscuits. Chocolate biscuits was a luxury. Different things. Do you like chocolate biscuits? Now? Oh yeah. <laughs> looking at the size of me, <laughs> I like chocolate. What, what's your favourite chocolate biscuit? <laughs> Do you know something? Oh, I like. I like them all. I like. I like them all. I've no favourite. I remember penguin biscuits. Oh, lovely. They they were, oh, I hated them. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I, honestly, three of us. We all used to. Mum used to do the food shop once a month, right? Yeah. So by the end of the month, it was only those, those penguins yeah, left. Yeah, pick up a penguin. No, because we hated them, all three oh. of us. And we'd be like, oh, no, fucking penguins. Me and my sister love penguins. Oh, that's still disgusting. Lovely yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. They're still lovely now today. <laughs> I like No, I, I like, like wagon wheels. They've gone small. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was a kid, the wagon wheels were nearly the size of my head. <laughs> they could nearly hold a wagon. Maybe a boy a wagon wheel. Maybe it's because I'm big. Maybe it's because I'm big. But no, but they, I, they have got a bit smaller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cheating. Heartbreaking. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, I, still, I still like my chocolate biscuits. Definitely. I love my food. I yeah. joke with people. People ask me all the time, what's my favourite meal? I say seconds. We're going for a meal after a hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love my food, but... When we were kids growing up, we had hard times, but we had great times. We'd make our own fun. You know, we used to have... What a, sort of games did you used to play? Yeah. We had the go-karts. We used to make the go-karts and we used to do book and skate. We used to, we used to, used to get a book and put it across a roller skate, a bit of string, and sit on the roller skate <laughs> and go down the hill. And you'd go to the side like this. You'd go to the side <laughs> like that to control the roller skate. Wow. You know, and then skateboards came out. We never had the money for skateboards. And... Um, just make our own fun, make trolleys. We used to have uh, the, the the wheels off old shopping trolleys and put them onto bits of wood and make this, the, the, the great times, but hard times, you know. We used to climb the trees and things. I things. think that's some of the best times because growing yeah. up, I, I spent a lot of time sort of tire swings, oh, yeah. uh, building dens. Yeah. And our kids today, they obviously, yeah, exactly. And kids today are just inside playing their computer games. They're not out mm. and about in the fresh air. They're not so, as tough now as what they used to be. 
children mm. now, I'm not being disrespectful to them, but they're mollycoddled, mm. right? They're mollycoddled now, you know, these, these PlayStation games and Nintendo mm. games and things like that, you know, the, the children are put into the, 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 the room, they've got the Xboxes and then they've got their um, YouTube and, and Atari <laughs> and things like that, you know. I, I think a child should be out braving the elements, mm. climbing trees, rolling around, wrestling with your friends mm. in the grass and, you know, physical. Because, see, with, with, with being physical and braving the elements, it makes you a little bit tougher. Mm. So when a cold or a flu or something comes along, you're a bit tougher. I'm not saying that the kids today are fragile, but they're a lot softer than when I was a kid. Definitely. You know, I see yeah. my nephews and nieces like they, they, they. Not as robust. No way. You, no one. You throw, your ba- throw your baby in the mud. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs> That's a saying, isn't it? Is it? Get their immune systems boosted. Ex- expose them, them the to mud. things. You look at some of the yeah, things yeah. that we would have eaten and drank, you know, when we were kids. Mm. Oh, I'd you eat know. mud, yeah. I used I'd to eat, eat bugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Even tap turkey pigs. Even tap water. Mm. Even tap water when Mm. we were kids. And the 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 way of 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 cleaning the water fifty years ago, I'm fifty-five now, so fifty years ago wouldn't have been as advanced as what it is today. Mm. So there would have been bacteria even in the tap water Mm. that I was drinking as a kid. Mm. It didn't do me any harm really. Strengthens your immune system. It does, yeah. Yeah. You know, now they've got so many um what do they call them, systems that they put the water through, mm-hmm. filter systems, Filters, right? Yeah. So by the time the tap water gets to you, it's very, very clean compared to what I would have been drinking mm. at my age when I was a, when I was five and six. I used to drink stream water. Mm. You know, we used to go camping and we'd, we'd fill up a bottle of stream water, we'd drink the stream <laughs> yeah. water, go yeah. over the rocks and things. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and now it'd be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. I don't drink the tap water, you've got to drink bottled water. Mm. You know, we wouldn't have had the money to buy bottled water. <laughs> so, no. what, what year did you move to England then? You said you came to England and went back. Oh, we came over to forth. England loads of times when we were kids. You know, my dad So kids just came temporarily, was it, then back and forth? Oh, we'd forth. come for a few months at a time yeah. during the summer holidays. Yeah. And then we'd spend a bit of time. Not every year. Mm. We couldn't do it every year. Where did you yeah. land at, Liverpool? No, we went to Liverpool, we went yeah. to Manchester, we went to London, mm. um, was in Birmingham. Um, different parts of the UK that my dad was working at the time. Mm. You know, if he was if he was working in London, we'd land in London, Tooting, Wandsworth, um, Putney, Wimbledon. Did you like the ferry? I did, yeah, when we were kids, it was an adventure. I remember being on it, it was going, an going the other way. As a kid, yeah. yeah we used to get the Hollyhead Ferry, we used to get the Liverpool yeah. Ferry, across the Dublin, Dunleary. You know, and it was an adventure. Mm. You know, I've done it now as an adult. It's like a floating hotel now. <laughs> you know, they've got so many luxuries on the ferry now. But when we were a kid, mm. was it, it just was like, your car? Like you had to sit in your car? No, no, you could go up on the decks and stuff. But it was. Um, it was in a coffee it wasn't, shop. It wasn't like it is now. No, there'd be there'd be a sweet shop or a, or, a, or a coffee shop. But now they've got McDonald's. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organised crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past, present and future. 
Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. They've got, oh, you want to see what they've got on the ferries now? Oh, are oh, yeah. they? Yeah, cinemas. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is on the Irish ferry. <laughs> see on the Irish Irish ferries across from Dunleary to They've got cinema rooms, um, games rooms for the kids. Play, play rooms and machines and mm. um, bars and restaurants. We're on the Isle of Man ferry when it hits some waves. That goes up and down, that one. It's all chained down. It's chained <laughs> down, yeah, yeah. I've never been to the Isle of Man. Oh, you've never been? Never been to the Isle of Man. I've been okay. to the Isle of Wight. I've been to Guernsey. I've been to Jersey. Yeah. Been to, um, oh, Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Wight. That's the other three. That's mm. the bit that I've been to. But I've never done the Isle of Man. So your family was always based in Ireland then? In Ireland, yeah. You came to visit England. Yeah. Did you move permanently to England at some point? Yeah, when my boxing finished, Sean, I um, had a bad car accident. I went professional with my boxing. Um, and I had four professional fights with Mr Eastwood, who was Barry McGuigan's and Dave Boyd McCauley's manager, mm. two Irish world champions. And I signed professional with him. I was chuffed to bits because he was the... Mm. The big man and uh, lovely man as well, Mr. Eastwood. He's died recently as well, God rest him. But uh, he managed me. But then I was involved in a, in a bad car crash and my boxing was finished. Oh, so after wow. my third, after my third professional fight, oh dear, and my boxing was finished, and I yeah. went into a bit of a, I went into a bit of a bad depression. Mm. And people used to say to me about depressions, you know, they were in an elderly depression. And I used to, I used to joke with people, behave yourself, mm. until it hits you. And it's like the sucker punch from hell when they hit you. Because mm. I never believed that. I was all full of the joys of life. Even with the, the hard times that I've had, I still used to smile and laugh and have to crack with people and joke and just have fun. Mm. Because we're not here for a long time. We're here for a, a good time. Good time, not a long time. The, yeah, yeah, I like that. yeah, and people ask me for my autograph, Jen, and I'm very humbled. And I always sign happiness, Joe Egan. <laughs> I wish people happiness because it's you can have all the money in the world and all the respect in the world, but if you're not happy, what good is it? And even mm. when, when I've had very little, I'm not saying I've got a lot now, but even when I had very little, I was still happy. I was happy with my lot, you know, and that's what you've got to be. You've got to try and smile and soldier on and, and enjoy life because today is a gift from God. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. That's why today is called the present. Mm. It's a gift from God. And I'm not trying to throw my beliefs. I pray every day. I believe in the power mm. of prayer. I believe in God. Call him Allah. Call him Buddha. Call him God. As long as you respect him in the right way, like I said earlier on, respect is such an important thing. Respect your vows. Respect your God. And respect other people. And carry yourself well. And for people that don't believe, I don't try and force my beliefs on them. But what I say to them is, think about it. I say, see when the shit hits the fan. And the shit hits the fan for a lot of us. What's the first thing you say? God help me. Yeah. That's the first thing you say. And the second thing you say is, 
And I, I believe that they've got to be there, mm. the police. They have to be there. If they weren't there, we'd have anarchy. Mm. Now, I've had my run-ins with them. I've had a lot of run-ins with them over the years. I'm glad that they're there. I don't like seeing them on rear view mirror. I'm, <laughs> glad that I'm glad that they're there. Yeah. But the first thing we say is, God help me. And the second thing we say is, phone the police. Yeah. You know, so both things that we, we slate, that we criticise, that we, 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 we sort of condemn in a way. We condemn the police. We condemn God. But both times when the shit hits the fan, they're the two things that you, you call on and you rely on. Well, I was facing 200 years. I was praying a lot. Right. And um, we do interview a lot of ex-cops on this channel and they're campaigning for, with us, to end the war on drugs and for the government. We want the government to prioritise crimes against women and kids. Because mm -hmm. it just seems like they're at the bottom of the scale and they should be at the top. It's all upside down. The thing is, we've all got mothers. Mm. That's one thing that we can, we're here because of mothers. Fathers make a contribution, but it's the mother that carries us for nine months. The mother that has the hard job, I believe. And I'm not saying it because you're a lady there, Jen. I believe that the woman has the hard job, right? The Thank man's you. job, Yeah, the man's <laughs> job is, is a fun part of bringing a child into the world. It's the woman that has to carry that child for nine months, then deliver that child, nurture that child, you know. And I, I, I don't like to see violence against women. I hate it as a matter of fact. I don't, not that I don't, I actually hate it with a passion because I don't think a woman should be hit. I think women deserve the respect and the care and the consideration as we should all respect each other, you know, and, and care for each other. But women, I'm not saying that they're fragile. I'm not saying that they're soft. You look at some of these women that are boxing, like I said earlier on, Leila Ali, mm. Katie Taylor, Jane Couch, tough, 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 tough women. And a woman, a woman is tough. To carry a child, to deliver a child, to go through what they go through, raising that child, it's hard. You know, I've got no children, and I admire people. I've got brothers and sisters that have had children. I've got all my brothers and sisters that have children, and I admire the job that a woman does. I respect the job that a woman does. But women shouldn't be getting hit. No. My mum, we spoke about her earlier on, my mum said, even in all my dad's drunken rages, he never raised his hand to her. And I would hate to hear that he did, because I worship the ground he stands on, you know, and I would hate to hear that he hit my mum. You know, and I'm 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 so glad to hear of my mum that he never raised his hand to her. And the battle against drugs, drugs is all around us. And I worked the doors. I saw I saw what drugs can do to people. You know, I've saw the lives ruined, the lives been taken by drugs. The sadness that drugs brings in. People say, oh, drugs bring euphoria, euphoria, and great highs and great fun. It brings in more sadness than it brings in highs. It brings in so many lows, more lows than it does highs. And I've always, always found that in the past with drugs, it's the high may be good, but the down is a real down. Yeah, but the high might bring that one person high, mm. but so many people it's bringing a low to, you know. And I, I just think this battle against drugs, it's got to, it's, it's got, to, it's got to continue. They've got to win, because drugs. It's the cause of so many problems in the world that we're living in. You know, they, 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 they blame so many different things, but I believe drugs is the main root of the cause of a lot of household problems, rage, um, people, people doing despicable things to people. Everything from knife crime in London to hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico. But would drugs, you not put that more drugs, down to drugs. addictions anyway, because you've got gambling, alcohol, so... Obviously, alcohol is classed as a drug. 
not just a I've, cast I've, drug. I've, I've, I've met a lot of gamblers over the years. I've met, mm. I've met, I've met a, lot of, a lot of drug abusers over the years. I'd rather be in the company of a gambler than, than a, a drug, drug abuser. Agreed. Right, because at least you know where you stand with a gambler. It's hard to know where you stand with a drug user because they're unpredictable. And to me, I don't want to be in the company of somebody that, that could just turn on you as quick as a blink mm. because of drugs, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm any capable man. I'm well able to look after myself. But you give your back to the wrong person. And the person that's that's high on drugs, that's um, volatile because of drugs, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. No. I've given my back to many gamblers. I've walked in the bookies. I've gone down to the bookie yeah. shop for my granddad. I've stood the only the other day I was with my boss, John O'Connor, we were in the bookie shop and I'm trying to pick a couple of greyhounds. <laughs> I had a, a bookie's full of men and women behind me. No problem whatsoever. Yeah. I was writing my bed cell, having a look at the greyhound racing. <laughs> Hopefully trying to pick a winner. I couldn't do that with a room full of druggies. Mm. No. You know, no. and I'm not being disrespectful to them, but it's a sad life that they lead. It's a sad, li a sad life that they exist. They don't live a life, mm. they exist a life. And it's tragic to see, you know. And I, I believe that we shouldn't make your fortune out of somebody else's misfortune. Mm. It's tragic, really, the world Definitely. we live in with the drugs. You know, gambling has been around since day one. Mm. Alcohol has been around more or less since day one as well. You know, Jesus shared wine, you know. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, but drugs hasn't been around since day one. Drugs has come along through life. Mm. And I don't think it's brought happiness to people. I think it's brought so much Temporary. sadness. Do you yeah. not do you not drink because you had a problem with alcohol at some no, point? I no, I don't drink. I just no interest in the alcohol. I had a Guinness with my dad yeah. when I was sixteen, and a cider with my friends when I was fourteen. Mm. I've never took drugs. I was on a film set once. Strong-minded. No, I enjoy life. I don't mm. need drugs or alcohol. You're high on life. Yeah, I am yeah. high on life. Yeah, yeah, I am really high on life. Yeah. You know, I've got some great friends. I've got great mm. family around me, and. I, I'm very fortunate, you know. I'm mm. very blessed, really. Because Sean, you don't drink either. So. No, because yeah. I had addiction issues. Did you? So if I drink, then that, the, the the guard is down, and I'm likely to do oh. silly stuff, get into you know back into drugs or something. So I just stay away from all of it now. Yeah, I'm staying all together. All together, yeah. Well, you're yeah. good. You're good. Yeah. Being able to do yeah. that, you yeah. know, fair play to you. Yeah. But I, I've I've no interest. No, no, mm. not not for health reasons or for anything else. I just don't. I just don't like them, mm. you know. I don't like to drink, and uh, the drugs definitely not. I was on a film set. I was on a film set um, a number of years ago doing a trailer for a film, and the film's called Dockyard. And that, uh, the director told me what to do. He said, "Right, the drugs have been smuggled in in, in cans of uh, coffee." He said, "Take the knife, open the tin of coffee, put the knife in, take the knife out, put the the contents of the the tin, which would be the drugs." onto the tip of the knife, then put it on your gums and give the reaction mm. as if you've got cocaine in your system. <laughs> and I said to the director, I've never took drugs. And the director looked at me, you've never took drugs? The assistant director went, you've never took drugs? The cast and the crew went, you've never yeah, took drugs? <laughs> the runner was going to get my coffee and sandwiches. He looked at me, you've never took drugs? I actually felt like an outcast. Yeah. I went, no, I've never took drugs. I said, mm. I've never took cocaine. I said, I wouldn't even know what the reaction is mm. other than... Glazed eyes, you know, but uh, 
They're also looking at me. Did they have to teach you what the reaction was going to be? The director told me what way to react, yeah. Right. He said, told me what way to react. He said, oh. He said, sort of, you know, give a little bit of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See if you've got, you know, the Novocaine that hits you when your yeah, dentist does your yeah. uh, teeth. He said that numbness. Yeah. You know, he told me what uh, what way to do it. And, uh, do you think you nailed it? <laughs> I don't know to tell you the truth. The film's never been made. It's still an investment trailer. Mm. But I've done um, three investment trailers. I've just done one there recently for the for the uh, boxing, the kickboxing film. Um, a friend of mine, Ken, he's having a a film made about his life. He's an ex-British kickboxing champion and Michael Elkin, who directed the last film of Rutger Hauer called Break, he's, he's doing the trade of the investment trailer and uh, we've done that investment trailer and then I did an investment trailer for that uh, dockyard and then I did an investment trailer for a movie called Price Fighter. And they're actually making Price Fighter at the moment, Russell Crowe and Ray Winston. I hope to be filming with them next week. Um, so three that I've done, one's come to fruition one has is, is just been done, so hopefully that will come to fruition. And the dockyard was done a few years ago. COVID has affected a lot of things. I can imagine. You know, but the three that I've done, and uh, fingers crossed, all three get made. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's good fun doing the mm. acting, you know. It's a whole new chapter to my life. How long have you been doing it for? Ten years now. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, do you know something? People joke about the boxing. The boxing is the entertainment industry. And even though it's, it's a contact sport, it's still mm. fun. And it's still the entertainment industry. So I do joke with people. When I was boxing, I did two adverts for Irish television for uh, a Lions teabag ad and a Murphy Stout ad. So, yeah, that was fun. A Stout ad? Murphy Stout. Don't drink alcohol. Oh, yeah, that was going to say. Two adverts that I do. <laughs> Murphy Stout and Lions tea. I, I don't drink tea and I don't drink beer. Yeah. But uh, I do joke with people. I acted my way through a boxing career. I had that, you know, I used to do the alley shuffle and mm. just have fun and have to have uh, and enjoy the boxing. You know, even in fights, I was getting battered in. I would still mm. enjoy them, you know. So to break into the acting now, 10 years ago, Cass Pennant published a book about my life. Mike Tyson launched the book in Canary Wharf. Tom Patty and Mike did the forward for the book. The book was a bestseller. It brought Canary Wharf to a standstill. Thousands and thousands of people came to Canary Wharf to buy the book and to see Mike Tyson. I know everybody was there for Mike Tyson, but Mike Tyson was there for me. Yeah. It was one of the proudest <laughs> days of my life. There were several world champions in attendance. Barry McGuigan, Paul Silky Jones, Alan Minter, God rest him. There was Steve Collins. There was, there was, there was an amazing, amazing day. And then Cass, who had a movie made about his life, called Cass. He gave me a, a, a part in his film. I played the landlord of the Britannia pub. So when I was on the film set, Tama Hassan, the actor, he said to me, Joe, you've got an amazing presence on screen. Would you fancy an acting career? And I said to, to Tama, I've been acting all my life. I said, through the boxing, standing <laughs> on the doors, having fun, you know. So I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. So he introduced me to his agent, and uh, she said to me, they're auditioning for a part in the Sherlock Holmes film to play a character called McMurdo to fight Robert Downey Jr., so I go down and do the casting. So I went down with the casting agents. They said, look into the casting lens, give an intimidating stare, <laughs> say this line. So I did that. Can you demonstrate went, wow. that? They said, wow, you've got an amazing intimidating stare. They said, um, I've had to look into the eyes I said, of Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis to try and intimidate them. So intimidate, to intimidate a couple of casting agents is no problem. <laughs> anyway, I got the part. I went down to carriages to do the read-through. My name played Joe Egan. Opposite Joe, Joe Silver, the CEO of Warner Brothers, Guy Ritchie. 
all around the table, the hierarchy of Warner Brothers. I'm sitting next to Jude Law, Robert Downey Jr., Ray Chumash Adams, who got the, the Academy Award for Southpaw, Eddie Marson, all these stars. And I, I was so honoured to be there. And then Guy Ritchie said, Joe, I've been trying to get you in one of my movies for a long time. I, I couldn't believe it. I said, yeah, you're winding me up. Were you starstruck? I was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, yeah. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. leaned in. This is Iron Man. Yeah. And he said, Joe, you come with a fearsome reputation. I couldn't believe that these people even knew me. But they knew me through sparring with Mike Tyson. Robert Downey Jr. is good friends with Tom Patty. They're in a car car club in, in Los Angeles and they're friends. So he knew of me. Anyway, got on great with him. Travelled down in the minibus to do the practice fight. And Guy said, how are things, Joe? I said, things are okay. Guy, I'm making ends meet. He said, has your agent told you what you get for the fight scene? I said, Guy never even asked. I'm just honoured to be in your field. When he told me, it was more than I got any of my pro fights. I was deadly serious. I said, Guy, for that money, Robert Downey Jr. can really hit me. You can kick me as well if you want to. And he took me for the laugh and he said, Joe, hmm. I don't want you to be beaten up. I said, Guy, I've been beaten up for a lot less. I'll do a few weeks in hospital for that money. And I didn't have to get beat up. I get into a prison scene that wasn't in the script. He put it into the script for me. And I get called Big Joe. I get called my own name by an Academy Award winning actor in a wow. Warner Brothers movie directed by Guy Ritchie. And it's made all the beatings that I've took in my life worthwhile. And I've took some savage beatings mm -hmm. in my life inside the boxing ring and outside the boxing ring. It's made them all worthwhile mm -hmm. because my mum is so proud. You know, my mum never wanted me to box. No mother wants to see her son be beaten no. up. But she sees me killed in the films all the time. She's been beaten up. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care. She knows it's not real, you know. Mm -hmm. Two oh. films I get killed twice in. Wow. People say, how can you get killed twice? I get killed as a human being, turned into a werewolf and killed as a werewolf. <laughs> I killed as a human being, turned into a vampire and killed as a vampire. I get killed twice in two films. But I don't mind. It's, it's only in the films. You know, I've had a few run-ins with the Grim Reaper in real life. You know, he's come for me a couple of times. But I've been able to fight him off so far. You yeah. know, so. What was your closest shave? Um, I had a blood clot in the back of my knee. And I was in America and I'd been on a 14-hour flight to North Carolina and the blood clot went from the back of my knee into my lung and I was five days in intensive care, three days in a, in a coma. So that nearly took me. Uh, I've been stabbed a few times. How many times? Four. Four. four different occasions. Four different occasions, yeah. yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, not nice. Jen's not heard the story of the... Um the running battle and the gun. Oh, my oh, God. Could, could you run that one down for, for Jen? Do you know something... That was probably, people say to me about being scared. I say, yeah, I'm only human. I'm not a machine. It's a human feeling to be scared. But there's two spellings of the word fear. The coward spells it, forget everything and run. The fighter spells it, face everything and rise. You know, and I've been a fighter all my life. Maybe not a good fighter, but I've been a fighter. And for the ones that tried to bully me, I made life difficult for them. Mm. And for the ones that battered me in the boxing ring, I gave a good account of myself. I fought to the best mm. of my ability. I wasn't good enough maybe to beat them, but they knew that I tried my hardest. Mm. You know, and I've always been a fighter and I've always had an abundance of courage. I've always been very brave. And that particular incident at the pub on the 19th of July, 1998. How old were you at that point? Oh my God, Sean. 60 something you said and you were born. I was 60. born in 65, so 65. this was 26 of July, 1998. My maths is rubbish. Mm. So 1998 in Boring. 33. 33. That's my age. I'm 55 now. So I'm 56 in November. Congrats. So um, I don't know how old I was. but 33. 33. Do you know something? On the 19th of July 1998, they put a demand in. Um, a gang that had been more or less running Birmingham for 15 years. Tugs and scum and 
Um, I thought this, even though I've done the security on my working life, when it happens to you like that, you think this is something you just see in a movie, mm. you know, these protection racketeers. But when it's happening to you, it's sort of very surreal. Anyway, my business partner at the time, um, I call Thomas McGill, um, he's ex-French Foreign Legion, he wanted to take it to them. He said, let's bring it to them. Let's not wait for them to come to us. Let's bring it to them. And the naivety in me, not being a coward, I'm no coward. The naivety in me, I said, no, no, I've got a second bite at the apple. My boxing mm. career is finished. I'm running a business now, a pub, and I'm making a good living. I've got a nice life. I live upstairs in the pub. I'm a pillar of the community, a licensee for a pub. Never in trouble in my life at the time, Sean. Well, Jan, I was never in trouble, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Honourable discharge from the, the, the uh, part-time army in Ireland, the FCA. Delta Airlines FAA registered licensee for a pub, you know. So I've always been a, a good person. And I said, let the police handle this, Tommy. I said, let the police handle it. So what had gone on prior? They demanded £500 a week from my business. They said, otherwise your pub's going to get burnt down. Right. You know, and um, these, this particular gang, I won't mention their names, I'm not going to glorify them. This particular gang had burnt down pubs in Birmingham. They'd, uh, they'd had a reputation. And they, they, they were a nasty, nasty gang. And uh, the guy that was fronting the gang, he, he'd come into the pub and he more or less told us what we had to do. Otherwise, this was going to happen. So uh, the following week, the 26th of July, the following Sunday, the Holy Communion on in my function room, this particular gang attacked my pub. 37 of them armed with a handgun. 37 of 37 them? 37 of them, yeah. 37 of them armed with a handgun, a shotgun, hatchets and machetes. I was very, very fortunate that I had friends of mine that used to frequent the pub. Mm. Xboxes, doormen, tough guys that frequented the pub and would have been in there for no other reason than they enjoyed the atmosphere in my pub. And I was very blessed, and I mean I was very blessed on that day that them men and women were there because those women fought alongside me as well. Wow. Fighting for their lives, yeah. you know, because these people came to kill and maim. And uh, it was a, a pitch battle. It was half an hour before I'd got the warning that they were coming. And then there's a 25 minute pitch battle. And uh, I took a couple of gunshot wounds. There was a, a very personal friend of mine, Steve Dalton, he took two bullet wounds. How did um, you know they were coming? We got a phone call. We got a phone call. I can't say who phoned me. I, I, I had a friend of mine phone me to say that these gangs were gathering in these particular pubs and they were on their way to attack you on a Sunday afternoon, broad daylight. Sunday afternoon, people enjoying their mm. Sunday. Broad daylight. Yeah. Holy yeah. communion in my function. That's low, isn't it? It was a horrible, horrible, horrible day. That headlines in the newspapers, it made Braveheart look like a Walt Disney film. There was, um, Did you have to form a battle strategy once you no, had the heads up? No, it was it was it was, was terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, when they when they got onto the car park of the pub, all balaclavered up and masks on and uh, wave. It was it was it was it was a, it was a horrible. But what must have been like a dozen cars at least or something, was there? They'd walked. They'd walked down Sutton Road. They'd walked down Sutton Road, broad daylight. No it shame. sounds like football hooligans, you know, in that film. Um, I won't even... I won't even foot Soldier. Yeah, I think it was Foot Soldier or something, one of those films, uh, Football uh, Factory, was, I think it is, where they were all walking down the yeah. road, just a big gang of That's what it was weapons like. Weapons and... That's what it was like. They yeah. walked down, and they walked down Sutton Road onto my car park, and um, it was it was a nasty, nasty... Where thing. were you when you spotted them? 
I was in my pub. I was I was trying to get help from the police. I'm not ashamed right. to say it. I was phoned. I phoned four times during the attack, and I I actually begged for help because there was friends of mine wounded, badly wounded. I was badly wounded, you know. And, what were the police uh, telling you? Someone's on the way. I had, I had a friend of mine. He's a sergeant at the time, Andy Gilbert, and I phoned that man, and he knew what was going on. He was my local beach sergeant, an absolute gentleman. He's, he's, he's raised in rank now in the police and I hope he goes all the way to the top because he is a credit to the force. And he was on his way to me. He said, I'll radio the station. He said, I will get men to physically disperse these gangs. As he was on his way to me, he got sent to a Mickey Mouse alarm call. On the Bromford. Oh. Mickey Mouse alarm call. Did an armed response unit ready that day. Did an armed response unit ready from two o'clock that day. They knew there was men coming to my public guns. Did an informants and it still took 30, 30 minutes of phone calls and 25 minutes of a battle. 55 minutes before the Holy first policeman arrived on my car park. Do you think they paid the, someone off? No, I don't think they paid anybody off. I just think that they're short-numbered. They're, 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 they're short of staff, right? Mm. They're closing down police stations, right? And I would not criticise the police. I would mm. not state the police in any shape or form, Yeah. right? I just don't think there's enough police. Yeah. I mm. think the, even in the West Midlands now, there's only six or seven mm. fully maintained police stations. They're closing police stations. It's all getting privatised and everything. They're closing down yeah. police stations. And we're living in a horrible society. Mm. There should be police stations everywhere. There should mm. be policemen on every corner. Mm. You know, there should be patrolling policemen, driving policemen, cycling policemen, helicopters. Mm. We live in, 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 in a society at the moment that's riddled with guns, riddled mm. with knives, riddled with drugs, riddled with gang wars, mm. and yet they're depleting the numbers of police yeah. when they should be increasing the numbers of police. Mm. This was 1998 and they hadn't got enough police on that day for mm. me. You know, so you, one, one police station, yeah. one police station, Queen's Road Police Station, mm. I lived four, maybe 600 metres from Erdington Police Station. Yeah. The police station was six, 800 metres from the Lindhurst pub. Yeah. Closed on a Sunday mm. in, a, in, a, in a community, Erdington, you know, in Birmingham, a busy community, yeah. and the police station closed. One police station covering that region. It's Have you seen them past couple Queens, years, Queens Road Police Station. They've since closed yeah. Queens Road Police Station. Mm. You know, now the only police station that's covering that area yeah. is Stetchford. Mm. You know, so you're covering a lot of mm. a lot of area. And then on a Sunday, you've only got a small workforce. Mm. You know? They haven't got the numbers to, to yeah. respond. Did your attackers know that? I, I, I think these people that attacked me have no they've got had a, a hatred for me that they shouldn't have had. I'd done nothing on them for them to hate me. But they had a hatred of of anything that was decent. People. When you saw him coming up the street then, what was going through your mind? Fear. Mm. You know, fear. Not just for me because, like I said, I, I, I spelt it earlier on, face everything and rise. I rose that day. But mm. I rose that day because I had men and women fighting alongside me. And I was blessed that they were there. Because if they weren't there, I wouldn't be here today. So All right, I might have took a couple of the people that attacked me with me. You know, but I wouldn't be here today. I was blessed that there was men and women. And there was a man that was shot beside me a man called Tim O'Regan. Tim O'Regan had survived World War II. He'd fought in World oh, War Jesus. II. An Irish man that had fought for the British Army in World War II. He stepped out. When the shotgun, when the handgun had been thrown on the floor, they'd fired three shots from the handgun and it was thrown on the floor. It jammed after three shots. It was a five-shot handgun. 
and it hit my pal, Dalton, twice. And he threw the handgun on the floor. Tim O'Regan stepped out with his hands up. He said, I can stop this. I can stop this. As he stepped out with his hands up, I stepped out to pull him back in behind the wall in the entrance to my pub. He was shot. The hit blown out of him and I hit the oh. shotgun pellets twice. But this was this this shouldn't have happened. Mm. You know, this should, it should never have got that far. You know, there was a there was a, a, a like like I said, it was it was a bad, bad day. Yeah. And blessings of God, nobody died. Even on the side that attacked me, nobody died. You know, and I'm glad that nobody died, even from the side that had attacked me. I wouldn't want that blood on my hands if somebody had died that day. So a lot and of I'm so glad that nobody died from the people that were in my pub. A lot of people got hospitalised. I was not hospitalised. I had to fight my way out of the hospital, Sean. You had to fight your way out of the hospital? I got talked to the hospital with Tim O'Regan. Right. I got brought to the hospital, badly wounded, mm. in the hospital, sitting in the ward in the hospital, mm. with the man that had been shot badly on my pub. Mm. As we got brought into the hospital, hospital drivers were talking to each other. They said, we've got the two gangs from the Lindhurst in the hospital. I said, there's no two gangs at the Lindhurst. I said, there was one gang attacked the pub. And I said, me and friends of mine that were in the pub defended us. I said, is there a police presence in the hospital? Yeah, there's a police presence in the hospital. I was sitting in the ward in the hospital and two family members of the gang that had attacked me, they weren't in the attack, walked past me in the hospital ward and put their fingers to my forehead as if they were shooting me in the head. So I've stood up. I've knocked both of them oh, out, shit. badly wounded. This is fact, I'm not making this up. Yeah. Right? I've knocked both of them up. I've picked up a stool. The sailing the people that are in that hospital ward. I didn't know who I was surrounded by. Because the people that had attacked me wore balaclavas and masks. Right? So I've picked up a stool to sail into them. People screaming, no, not to do with us, not to do with us. Then the police came running in. And I've led a few screams and shouts at the police. I said, You've walked me into this, right? Which was bad, right? Eventually, I, I got out of the hospital and I went to another hospital the next day to get seen to. Wow. But that's not, the, that's not the best part of it, Sean. I got charged. I, I had to defend a charge against me. All I'd done was defend myself. That's right? bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. When I beat the charges, when I beat the charges, I got summoned to Queen's Road Police Station to collect my belongings. I went out to Queen's Road Police Station. I had, had a lot of um, stress and anxiety you know, getting into trouble. Never been in trouble in my life, Sean, up until that moment in time. And um, when 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 I did get into trouble and after the battle and everything else, I had an abscess in my belt burst and the poison went through my system. Oh. And I was in, it was, it, was, it wasn't, it was, it was, it wasn't good times. It wasn't good times in my life. And um, we were talking about something else. Yeah. I, I, I get emotional okay. because okay. I've come through this Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Big Joe Egan, the toughest white man on the planet. And that statement came from none other than Mike Tyson, who wrote the introduction to the book. If you want to check it out, the link is in the description box below the video. It's got almost five stars on Amazon. And it is mind-blowing stories of Joe's rise in boxing. You've got the crime story of what went down at the pub the war at the pub, Joe's incarceration, and how the toughest white man on the planet could not be held down, how he rebuilt his life. You know, you can see right now what he's doing all over the world. So links will be in the description box below the video. Thanks for watching. I've come through this. Yeah. I'm still here today. Like I said, Steve Dalton, 
and the brave men and women that stood Credit beside me. Yeah, shout out to them. Yeah, I will be grateful for them to the mm. day I die. Mm. You know, I mentioned their names in my book. I didn't mention the names of the family or the gang that had attacked me or the man that shot mm. me because I will not glorify them. Do you understand? But the men and women that stood beside me on that day, the 26th mm. of July, 1998, I named them in my book. I took them down to the Grosvenor House Hotel in London when Mike Tyson was over <laughs> to meet Mike Tyson. <laughs> and when we went into the hotel, Mike Tyson said, Joe, any more trouble at your pub and I'm landing. <laughs> <laughs> These people that with me on the... Wow. 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 Mike knows about this. I said, yeah. of course he does. He's my boyhood friend. I said, I tell him mm. all the things that happened in my life. And mm. this was an incident in my life that should not have happened. Mm. I'm glad that I came through. But I said, you are here today. And the reason I'm here today is because you helped me on mm. that day. Then people helped me. Yeah. And I'm still friends with How them many of them were you? Because there was nine. 30. Nine. Nine yeah. versus 37. Nine, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it? Wow. Yeah. Two of, so them, two of them, two of them Xboxes. No, a lot of them Xboxes. I tell a lie. Mm. I tell a lie. There was... Um, there was. Uh, do you want me to name them? If if they're okay with that, yeah. I wouldn't mind naming them. James Campbell, mm. very personal friend of mine. Next pro box of fifteen pro fights. Mm. Steve Dalton, Big Lurch, GT Big used Lurch. to do them at my door. Danny Brown, Tommy McGill, Mike's business partner. The women that fought alongside me: Steve Dalton's sister, Kathy Dalton. You know, give her praise. She mm. stood and fought a woman. Um, Stephen, Steve Dalton's wife. Jason McAdinnan's sisters, Tina McAdinnan. He fought. Um, it was a bad day. Mm. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a horrible day. But these men and women, and I, I, I loved them dearly. You know, they were friends of mine from the pub, customers of mine in the pub. But that day, there was a band of brothers and sisters. You know, like what you see in a movie. But these people, these people put their lives on the line for no financial gain for friendship and love Loyalty. of each other. Steve Dalton says to me many, many times we've spoken about it. He said, Joe, my wife and sister was in that pub. He said, if them animals had got in the door, what damage would it have done to them? He said, I, I fought for them. I said, Steve, as far as I'm concerned, you fought for me and for every customer that was in that pub. Mm. And I was singing your praises to my last breath. You know, because he was, and still is, one of the bravest men I've ever met in my life. You still have the pub, Joe? No, no. The pub's been knocked to the ground. Um, it's it's the houses now. Did you have it long after that? Yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't let them. I wouldn't let them. They didn't beat me on the twenty sixth of July, nineteen ninety eight. And if I'd have closed after that day, they would have won. Mm. So we kept that pub going. Me and my business partner kept it going until two thousand and and one. But unfortunately, and I'm ashamed to say, I turned to crime to keep the pub going because if I'd have closed the pub I would have glorified them animals that attacked I wouldn't even call them animals I wouldn't even call them animals I call them scum animals wouldn't do to each other what these scum tried to do to me mm -mm. you know and um, I turned to crime because when I was charged what was the charge? it was uh, one of them numbers where they was it um um Oh, what the, like an ABH type of thing. Okay. Section, was it Section 19 or something 16, like that? 16, I can't remember. One of them numbers 16, anyway. Yeah, yeah. One <laughs> of them numbers. It's wounding with intent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We right? It's yeah. like an attempted murder. Mm. 
you know, but it's one of them numbers anyway. I don't know the numbers. I, I'd never been in trouble in my life oh. before. And at the time, uh, my ex-missus, she was running away with Michael Flatley, the river dance guy. That was no. All, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all over the world's news, yeah. yeah. Was it? Yeah, she was, I was a sinking ship. I was gone. I was finished. I was, so her eyes, it was over, you know, and uh, she was away having an affair with, uh, at the time, the biggest star in the world. He was, he was huge. He was earning a million pounds a week. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably cleared off it myself to tell you the truth. A <laughs> 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 million pounds a week he was on, you know, so I could understand the uh I could understand the, the appeal, attraction. Yeah. <laughs> so uh that that was that was all over the world's news and um so at the time I was I was having a legal battle with her over over my house in Ireland. Then I was on uh, the the criminal charges with the police for um, defending myself and then the brewery was trying to evict me because they said I wasn't a fit and proper person in the pub so I was fighting on three fronts Did the judge kick you out or was there a trial? No, there was trials I had a trial, I won a oh, trial God. but um, at the time I was spending money that I hadn't got mm. I sold my watch that my mum and dad got me for my 18th birthday the ring they got me for my 21st I sold my car I sold everything I had you know, mm. to pay legal battles I wasn't getting legal aid and um, the VAT money that I'd saved to pay the VAT bill for the pub, I used that. And um, anything that I could possibly sell, you know. And by turning to crime, I probably sold my soul, you know, mm. because... Uh, was it prote protection, was it? Yeah, well, the thing was, I, I, I got involved then with, with, with stolen cars. Mm. And a, a chap come to the pub and uh, I was at a very low ebb in my life. And he said, uh, would you mind if I park stolen cars on your pub car park, Joe, I'll give you money. And I just thought to myself, you can park tanks on my car park, I don't care. <laughs> at, at that stage, I was so low, I was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was a beaten man, you know, fighting these legal battles, running out of money, you know, and I didn't want to lose the pub. Because like I said, if I'd have lost the pub, I would have glorified them animals, that, them scum that had attacked me on the day and I didn't want to glorify them. So I turned to crime to make money to pay for legal fees because what was being done to me was a crime. You know, the brewery shouldn't have been trying to evict me. I was defending their premises. They should have helped me, you know. The fact that she was trying to take my house in Ireland, she was running away with a man who was earning a million pounds a week. He had houses all over the world. She didn't need my house in Ireland. But it was wrong that was being done to me and to be charged for defending myself. The statute law in the UK says you're allowed to defend yourself. So what did I do that was wrong? You know, all I done was defend my life and defend anybody that I caught that day and they defended me that stood beside me, alongside me. You know, so really uh, what I was doing wasn't a crime, but what was being done to me was a crime. But I did get involved in crime and I'm ashamed to say that I did. And I, I, I do tell the story when I was in court the only time at that stage where I'd saw my daddy cry was when his daddy died. I'd watched him cry that day for the first time in my life and I didn't understand what was going on. We'd come home from school and uh, my mother met us in the hallway. My younger brothers and sisters were already in and in bed. It was half past four and she's screaming, let's get up to bed, get up to bed, get up to bed. And it was only half past four. Batman was on at five o'clock. But... I didn't know, I, I was worried because my mum was running around like I had this chicken. Anyway, I went up the stairs and sat on the landing, I'm arm around my next brother to me, Emmett. 
mother brothers and sisters are in bed and I'm, I'm cradling him in my arms. I'm looking down through the banisters and what's what seemed like ages, probably an hour, hour and a half. Then my dad came in from work, six o'clock, six thirty. He was he was home at the time and I saw my mum talk to him in the hall. I couldn't hear what she was saying. But I just remember looking down through the bandages, me and my brother, and I saw him take his head in his hands, and I saw him crying. And in every boy's eyes, his dad's the toughest man on the planet. So in my mm. eyes, my daddy's the toughest man on the planet. And I watched him cry, and uh, I got the fright of my life. I, I felt so scared, scared that I've ever been, even up to now, that was the scaredest I'd ever been in my life. Even that day on the 26th of July, I wasn't as scared as I was that day. Because now, my... My dad was crying, and, I, and my world caved in. And um, we found out afterwards that his daddy had died, mm. and it hit him hard, and um, that was the reason why he was crying. Well, years later, when I was in court, and I was found guilty in court of a crime, and my dad was up in the gallery, I remember looking up in the, the gallery, and I saw him hold his head in his hands, and it was exactly the same as him crying, holding his head in his hands when his daddy had died. And I felt sick, even now talking about it. I'm not going to cry. Mm. I felt sick. I felt sick. I feel sick now. Do you feel ashamed? Ashamed, yeah. Yeah. I feel ashamed. Even now, I won't cry. I'm not going to cry. I've cried loads of times. I cry all the time. But um, It's good to cry. Yeah, it's, it's no harm. I yeah. cry. And I, I wouldn't... I, and I felt sick. And I've said then, and I mean it, I will never, in my whole life, I'll never get into trouble again. <laughs> it's like when I, my mum flew 5,000 miles to visit me in Arizona prison. And she's been outside waiting in the desert for hours and, you know, patting people down, sniffer dogs and all that. And then you see her. It's horrible, isn't it? You remember that for the rest of your life. Mm. When, when I had a day off from prison, I was in a, they, they call it your flat date, your facility license eligibility date. Mm. And you get to a day where you're a, a model prisoner. And um, I saved a man's life in prison. I saved a, How long were you in prison yeah. for? I originally got two and a half years. And when I was in prison, they tried to increase um, the sentence to seven. Oh. Yeah, I had, a, I had a run, I had a bit of a an issue with certain members of the West Midlands Police. Not them all. There's mm. plenty of good police officers there, but there's bad and all. You get bad plumbers, you get profession. bad electricians, yeah, yeah. you get bad barbers, you get bad hairdressers, you get bad painters and decorators. So you can't not get a bad policeman. Do mm. you understand? But that's walk. That's all walks of life. Mm. You can't blame the force. Yeah, because of one person or two people, mm -hmm. you can't blame the the painting decorator, the painters and decorators, because of one bad painter. Yeah. You know, you, 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 Go you, government policy is to do with a lot of it as well. Because we work with a lot of police, yeah, and they're very, very well-meaning, the very well-meaning people. But then orders mm. come down from above, and they end up doing things they don't really want to do. A lot of them. Yeah. Unfortunately, today, the police force, in my eyes, is a bit of a police farce. Right, because they're not allowed to be forceful anymore. Mm. You know, when I was a kid, if I'd done something bold and I saw a policeman, I would run hell for leather. <laughs> right mm. now, these kids, and that's all they are out stabbing each other to death mm. 14, mm. 15 years of age. They have no respect for the police force mm. because the police force isn't a force anymore. Mm. Because if that policeman takes out his baton and gives them a belt and a baton, He's reprimanded. Mm. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. I got mm. battered when I was a kid. It didn't do me any harm. Because you know what? Because I respect others, I respect my elders, and I have self-respect. Mm. A lot of these youth today don't have that in them. Out of control. You know, out of control. Mm. You know, and I think that the police 
need to be given better powers of arrest. Mm. Prisons, prisons are like a holiday camp, right? Mm. And I, I, I was in there. Playstations, TVs, three meals a day, central heating. The soldiers that have fought in World War II mm. haven't got three meals a day. Veterans of foreign wars, they haven't got three meals a day. Soldiers that have served this country, living on the street, you know. Now, I'm not being disrespectful to the Germans, but my sister's married to a German. But see, if it wasn't for the <laughs> British Army, we'd be speaking German today. Mm. You know, the British Army beat Hitler, mm. you know, and I will, I will rave about I know we've had our history with the British Army in Northern mm. Ireland, but the British Army done what they had to do to beat Hitler. And I thank them for that. You know, I, I admire them, I admire their courage, mm. you know, in different battles and campaigns that they've been in. Yeah, we've had the history in Ireland. I don't get into politics. But some of these soldiers are living on the streets now. Some of these old soldiers that fought in World War II haven't got the money to turn the heating on, haven't got three meals a day. So why should a convict mm. be getting luxuries and special treatment that soldiers that have served this country well it's haven't sad, got? It's sad. More than Heartbreaking. More than half my friends in prison were ex-soldiers as well because they come back, didn't get any help, and then got on street drugs for the PTSD and ended up... Most prisoners these days are people with drug drug issues. They need to take them out and put in the paedophiles, the rapists, the women beaters, the predators. That's who should be in prison. They need to increase those sentences. Listen, let me tell you something now. Mm. There's not enough of a deterrent to turn people away from doing crime. If yeah, the punishment yeah. was there to fit the crime, people would think twice about doing the crime. Yeah, correct. You know, we had one woman who was molested by her own dad. And he wrote a letter to the judge mocking the whole process because he knew they could only give him so many years. He was out within a couple of years. That is messed up. Listen, let me tell you something now, right? I believe that they should bring back the death sentence, right? And I will stand up and say, no problem whatsoever. Bring back the death sentence. When you have no doubt whatsoever that this person has took lives, not just one life, many lives, and that they've been put into these mental institutions, where they're getting mollycoddled, these prisons where they're getting cared for, that money would be better spent on caring for sick people mm -hmm. and for elderly people, you know? Yep. Put them to sleep. I'm not saying rip them apart. I'm not <laughs> saying tear them apart or feed them to the dogs. Mm. You know, give them an injection, like mm. they do in certain states in America, when there's no doubt, mm. when there's no doubt. You know, if there's an element of doubt that you can't take that person's life. Mm. But when there's no doubt, give them the lethal injection mm. and send them to hell. Do you understand? Because that's where they're going anyway. Mm. They're not going to heaven. They've committed horrible crimes. So why keep them alive? Why leave them in the lap of luxury and let the, the victims or the families of these people that have mm. killed, that they've killed, suffer? And I think there should be money spent more on catering and caring for, for the sick and the elderly than catering and caring for some of these sickos that are in prison. And give the kids things to do as well so they're not on the streets. Yes. Boxing, more boxing. Rehabs, and... youth clubs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wear a T-shirt today, the Big Joe Egan Boxing Gym. Yeah. A very personal friend of mine, Dave Mariner, who, who runs a charity yeah. called the Unmasked Mental Health. He works with a lot of soldiers that are suffering with the PTSD. Mm. A very, very good man. Mm. You know, a, a pillar of the community. He's gone through the government now, the Big Joe Egan Boxing Academy. We opened the first one down in Leeds. Hopefully we'll be opening the second one now in Hastings. I'm with the guys and the kids on, on Friday in, in, in the boxing gym. I'm very proud that they've used my name. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't uh, anything special in the boxing, but 
I, I, I fought to the best of my ability and I've been a good ambassador for boxing because mm. boxing doesn't just need great fighters, it needs great ambassadors. Mm. And I, I think I'm a, I'm a good ambassador for the, for the sport, you know, and um, to have this gym named after me and have these gyms, mm -hmm. you know, that are going to open more in the future. But Dave has, has done this for me and I, and, and, and I thank Dave Marino for that. But uh, he works, like I said, with a lot of people suffering with PTSD, but through unmasked mental health. And it's, 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 it's great what he does. But the gyms are going to be like a youth club. They're going to be a safe haven. Mm. You don't have to go in there and box. There's kids going into the gym that need protection from the bullies. The police stations are being closed, so they might not be able to run from the school to the house, which is a safe haven. Well, the house isn't even a safe haven anymore. No. Because when I got bullied, I got physically bullied. Now, if you get a bruise or a cut or a broken arm or a broken leg or a broken jaw, the doctor can say to you, that's going to heal in mm. six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks. See, the mental torture that children are getting with computers, you know, cyber keyboard bullies, and over the phones. There is no time date that they can say that torture will end, that will heal. A bruise, a cut, a broken arm, a fracture, they can give a date when that will heal. But the torture that these children and young adults and adults mm. are getting through the bullies, through the... The, the media, through the social media, through the, the, the keyboards. There's no date for when they're going to heal. And that is a worse form of bullying, mental torture, yeah. you know. And the, the guy whose life you saved in prison, was he getting bullied? No, he was a prison officer. Oh, what happened ah. there? What happened? Prison officer. He was an ex-soldier an ex yeah. that to subsidise his pension, he was working as a part-time prison officer. I was in an open prison at that stage. And the man that took a heart attack. Now, when I was a kid, I was in the St. John's Ambulance Brigade. You know, I learned a little bit of the first day. My dad and mum would encourage us to do lots of different things, mm -hmm. to stay off the street. I was in the Sea Scouts. I was in the boxing gym. I used to go to the youth club. And I was in the St. John's Ambulance Brigade. Mm -hmm. And I learned a little bit of the first aid. So I attended <laughs> to, the, to the officer and um, sent, set off the alarm and um, kept the man as comfortable as I possibly could during his, 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 his heart attack. And then the security prison officers, they, they got there in time to get him to hospital and he, and he survived. Mm -hmm. And I got a commendation letter from the governor of the prison. And um, I was just happy that I was able to help somebody. Wow, that man didn't fantastic. put me in prison. Yeah. He never put me in prison. Mm. That prison officer did not put me in prison. He was there to supervise my stay in prison, you know, to make sure that I was safe in prison. Mm -hmm. You know that I was. I Did was... any of the other inmates give him shit? We we just interviewed Alex. Listen. We just interviewed Alex Reed. Yeah, Alex he's, just, a good guy. he's just been in, he's just been in prison. Yeah, so I believe. And he's talking about how as soon as he went in, someone was like, "Oh, so you're Alex Reed," and they all found out because you're a big name. Was, was there anything similar happening with you in there? No, I I I, I pride myself my manners, Sean. You know, yeah. And I, I pride myself my manners. Mm. I don't claim to be any tough guy. Mm. I don't claim to be a hard man. People say it. You know, Mike Tyson says it. Like I said, I could take a beating, you know, but manners has got me through life mm. more than being a tough guy, more than being, a, 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 you know, being able to look after myself. There's always manners. someone who wants to test you, isn't it? If I, if I can have a fight with him and he's a big name, then I'm going to be a big name. Don't you run across people like that in prison? I've, 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 met, I've, met them, I've met them through life, you know. Yeah. I do... They do say, oh, you think you're a hard man. You think you're a tough guy. No, I don't think I'm a hard man. I don't think I'm a tough guy. Mm. You know, I could probably take you. I say, you probably could. <laughs> you know, diffuse it through civility. As quick as I can. Yeah. You know, yeah. because to tell you the truth, 
when I was in prison, when I was in prison, I won't name the chap's name, I met a man that had killed a man on the street. And I was the gym orderly in, in, the, in the prison. And I saw this guy skipping. I saw him skipping. And I thought, wow, this guy can use a skipping rope. So I thought, he must have boxed at some stage of his life because that's a big part of the boxing regime training, skipping. So beautiful physique on the man. And it was in open prison at that stage. So uh, I introduced myself to him. And I said, they obviously boxed. He said, yeah, he said, I had 10 professional fights. How do you know? I said, because the way you can skip. I said, you're, you're brilliant on the skipping rope. So I said to him, I said, what are you in for? He said, I'm in for manslaughter. I said, oh, you killed a man. He said, yeah. He said, I'm not proud of it. He said, I was in the pub. He said, having a drink. He said, the rail started in the pub. I defused the rail. He said, I didn't want to fight the guy. I was a professional boxer. He said, so I left the pub. He said, the guy followed me to my home. He said, but it was outside my home. He said, screaming abuse. He said, I got my wife and my children mm -hmm. in my home. He said, I was so scared for them, not for me. So he said, I walked out of my front door and he said, the guy swung at me. And he said, I slipped it and I hit him and he fell and he hit his head and he died. He said, when I was in the dock, he said, the four security guards got around me. And he said, I pushed them back. He said, I'm not jumping the dock. He said, but they knew what was coming. They knew the sentence that was coming. He said, I didn't know the sentence that was coming. When the judge said life with a recommendation of 10 years, he said, my legs buckled. He said, I went weak. He said, and the four security guards kept me up. He said, so I'm coming to the end of the 10 years now. He said, they've put me into open prison. He got out on his first date that he was able to leave after 10 years. I wished him well. Oh, you know, that was shouldn't just... shouldn't have a, even been in the first Should place. never have been in there. You know, should never have been Protecting in there. The man, the man didn't deserve 10 years in prison. I met another chap in there that had killed a man on the rugby pitch. And he only got three and a half years. He stomped, One scrum or something. He stomped on the guy's head on the rugby pitch and a little bit severe, whatever he'd done, and he ended up getting three and a half years for the for the for the for the tackle or whatever he'd done. And um I thought to myself, like three and a half for one guy, life with a record ten years to do the guy. It was a little bit cruel. And he's got he's got I met a chap in there that was on one of them life tariffs and he bought a stolen stereo. And he was back in for seven years. Yeah, IPP. Yeah. Yeah. Life license, you know. So you've got to be very, very careful. And that chap that I met in there, if he's watching this program or watching the listening to the interview, I can't remember his name for the life of me anyway, but I wish him well in life and hope he's never gone back in. I'm not saying because he was an ex boxer, but he didn't deserve that sentence. I know it was tragic, the man that that that, that died during the, the punch up. How did you maintain your fitness and uh, health and food regimen inside? When I was in the prison, my first job I got was in the catering and I was in the kitchens and um, that was fine. That was mm -hmm. handy. And then um, what was the next job I got? I was in three different prisons. But I made the most of it when I was in there. But the best job I had was the gym orderly. But yeah, the food was okay. You know, was it? Plenty, plenty of it, three meals a day. Yeah. Plenty of it, you know. I, I, and... Uh, it was it was it was it was hard at times. It was harder for my family than for me. Were they visiting you? I got visits. I got visits regular. Yeah, and um, I remember one time when I was out on a day release. Um, Paddy Finn 
the ex-Irish heavyweight champion, who brought me to Birmingham to work and to live. He was the reason I settled in Birmingham. His family had founded my amateur boxing club, and I loved the man dearly. And um, he gave me the opportunity. When his boxing career finished, he said he had to retire. He went into the pub trade. So when my boxing career finished, he gave me an opportunity to come and work for him. I did uh, an MVQ certificates, a BOI certificates. I left school when I was 14 with two school, two swimming certificates, you know, 1,500 metres and 800 metres swimming certificates. I know, like, I wasn't academic. And when I'd done these courses for Paddy, I'd done uh, two MVQs and a BII, British Institute of Innkeeping. I was very proud of myself and I became the licensee of his pub. But um, he arranged for my mum and my three aunties, my mum's three sisters, Linda, Geraldine and Catherine, to visit me. So I'm sitting, having a lemonade, because I don't drink alcohol, <laughs> at the side of Paddy Finn's pub, the Dubliner at the time, which was opposite <laughs> the bus station. I knew nothing about this. Oh. I was just having a day out oh. in the company of my friend Paddy Finn, having a glass of lemonade, enjoying the sunshine. Mm. And I'm looking at the Dublin Hollyhead bus <laughs> pulling in the Birmingham bus mm. station. And I'm looking, my mum, and my three aunties oh. are stepping off the bus. <laughs> and uh, even now, I was like, oh, I thought, is this an apparition? I was rubbing my eyes. It's <laughs> not my mum. It's not my auntie Linda, my auntie Geraldine, my auntie Catherine. I saw the four of them started screaming, ah! <laughs> and I looked at Paddy Finn and I knew he'd organised that. And it was a lovely day. They mm. stayed for the weekend. I, I only had the one day out of prison. But it was a lovely day. But I never asked my mum. I actually, I asked her not to visit me in prison. I said, please don't come over and visit me in prison. I said, I said, I don't want to have to go through, mm. but they have to go through to enter yeah. prison to visit mm. me. My dad visited me in prison and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't encouraging him to visit, but I couldn't discourage him. You know, he's not the sort of man that you tell no <laughs> to, you know. Even yeah. as an adult now, you know, he's he's suffering a bit with the dementia. Mm -hmm. He's 84, but he's still, he's still the daddy, you know. He's mm. still my dad, you know. And uh, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I couldn't stop him coming to visit me to prison. I had a bit of more influence over my mum than I did over my dad. But she came, like I said, Paddy Finn arranged that day. And... Um, time went too quick it was just it was just but just to see her and embrace her and hold her kiss oh. her and hug her and that it was just lovely but uh yeah i made the i made the most of my time in prison i, I, I trained and uh, got myself fit and healthy and when i came out of prison i made a comeback into boxing did you have a plan that you made while you were in prison for when you got out just to fight again i was going to box <laughs> box again you know there's a big write-up in the boxing news it said George Foreman made the comeback after 10 years. Big Joe Egan made the comeback after 12 years. <laughs> to get mentioned in the same paragraph as George yeah. Foreman was something else. One of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. But I made a comeback and um, I wasn't Joe the convict anymore. I was Joe the boxer again. Yeah. And it made my mum and dad very proud again because I'm not saying they're ashamed of me when I went to prison, but it wasn't... Uh, was it your highlight? No. Oh. You know, so when I made the comeback, and I needed the money as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was broke. I didn't want to go back into any sort of crime. No way. And uh, how does it feel to fight in front of like a massive audience? Do you know something, Sean? And it's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not hard. When you walk into the ring, you're scared. You know, you get into the ring, you face your opponent, you touch gloves. You're scared. 
when the bell rings, the fear goes, you know. And I remember one of my, my, my first actual pro fight, I remember the medical. Who was um, your first pro fight? John Williams. Okay. Uh, he's dead now, God rest him, he died of cancer. He was my first pro fight. He was coming off two good knockout wins. He was after knocking out two of my pals. He was after knocking out one of the men that stood beside me in the pub. Wow. Man called wow. John McBean, yeah? He was after knocking John out in the fifth round. Mm. Years later, that man stood beside me in my pub wow. at the battle, John mm. McBean. And my, my friend Warren Wigan, the featherweight, mm. he, he, he knocked out two of my clubmates when we boxed Dublin against Birmingham. So these were men that I'd boxed with and um, they stood beside me, you know. And um, yeah, so John, John Williams beat me, boxed me in my first pro fight. I, I beat him in my first pro fight. So as, soon, as, as soon as the bell goes, then it's just tunnel, tun, tunnel yeah. vision. Yeah. Just yeah. get the job done. Yeah. But my first pro fight, I'm at the weigh-in and I'm looking around the, the room. There's five or six big guys with tattoos and muscles and... I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm not fighting him. Oh, I'm not fighting him. <laughs> 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 you know, they're impressive looking men. They yeah. say, oh, Jesus. Like, anyway, I've gone in to see the doctor. My heart was racing. I was so scared. This was just a weigh-in. And the doctor said to me, are you nervous, Joe? Stevie Wonder could see I was nervous. I was terrified. <laughs> I, I went, yeah, I'm nervous, doctor. He said, I've just examined your opponent, and he's twice as nervous. <laughs> Happy days. When you walk to the ring, you have that fear. George Foreman, I mentioned George Foreman again. There's a video out there called Champions Forever. And there's five great world champions on there. George Foreman, Joe Frazier, Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali and Ken Norton. Five of the greatest champions of all time. And uh, they're talking about their experiences in the life and the boxing. And George Foreman said when he boxed Ken Norton, he said, I looked across the ring. He said, and he was the finest specimen of a man I've ever seen. He was chiseled. The muscles were on top of muscles. He said, I walked to the center of the ring. He said, I eyeballed Ken. Ken eyeballed me. He said, I was so glad that Ken didn't look down because my knees were shaking. <laughs> 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 Major George. George Foreman, one of the greatest heavyweight wow. champions of all time, saying he was scared. Yeah. You know, and that's the great thing about the boxing. If you can climb into that ring and you can fight your opponent, male or female, Men and women are doing it now. If you can fight, nothing in life will phase you. You mm. can go and do interviews mm. for PLC companies. You can go and do exams. You can go and do anything you mm. want because there is nothing in life that will be more scarier than walking to that boxing ring to fight. And then they walk to the cage. Mm. They walk to the cage to fight. They walk to the octagon to fight. Anybody that fights, any form of fighting, martial arts, K1, Muay Thai, you know, I admire them all. I respect them all. Because you play football, you play golf, you play tennis, you play basketball. You don't play fighting. Fighting isn't a game. It's a sport. You know, you don't go in there to kill your opponent. Mm. You know, tragically, there is, is fatalities. But there's fatalities on the rugby pitch. There's mm. fatalities in the Formula One racing. You know, there are fatalities in sports. It's not your intention to kill your opponent. It's your intention to win by the fairest way possible. Not yes. by cheating, mm -hmm. you know. You don't want to get in there and headbutt your opponent to cut him to the bone to win. It's not a nice way to win. It has been happening, you know. People win fights by 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 cheating, mm. but it's not it's not a nice way to win. I wouldn't want to win by cheating. How did you become um, Mike Tyson's most formidable sparring partner? When I went to the to America to box, I boxed um, a man called. Um, William Dawson, I think his name, big marine sergeant, and I was only 17, he battered me. But I stayed on my feet, I stayed on my feet, took the beating, 
and then um, Floyd Patterson was in attendance. He he was married to an Irish lady from Offaly, and he took a great interest in the Irish team. Paul Fitzgerald, the featherweight, he still lives in America now. He lives in Upper Derby in Philadelphia. I've visited him a few times over the years. He won. He, he was very impressive in winning. I lost, but whatever I did in losing, Floyd Patterson took an interest in me. He said, you've got a good chin, you've got a big heart. He said, you haven't got much skills. I've never had much skills. He said, uh, I can work on your skills. He said, you've got the courage, you're born with the courage. You cannot give a person courage. They've either got it or they haven't got it. If they haven't got courage, boxing isn't for you. Mm. You know, and um, I knew I had courage. Floyd Palace knew I had courage. I had a good chin. I took some good beating <laughs> in my life, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he gave me the chance to stay on in America. And uh, I went to, I phoned my mum. I said, mum, I'm staying in America. Oh, son, she said, you'll never come home. <laughs> I said, I'll be home next year. I said, I'm home next year, ma'am. And he took me to Gleason's gym. I sparred with a couple of pro heavyweights in Gleason's gym. Mark Tucker was one. I can't remember the other chap's name. Anyway, Al Gavin and Bob Jackson, who, who, who had bought the original gym of Costa Motto, who was the man that looked after Mike Tyson. They said there's a young heavyweight in the Catskills called Mike Tyson looking for sparring partners. 17 years of age, same age, actually six months younger than me. Mm. I was so happy to hear this because I'd been fighting men because I was big for my age, but I hadn't got that man strength. I was on the doors when I was 15. You know, I, I felt in my mind I was a big man. I was a mature man. I wasn't. I was still a teenage boy. But I was fighting men. But when I heard Mike Tyson was similar age to me, as it turned out, six months younger than me, I'd never knew who Mike Tyson was. He was knocking out men left, right and centre. I didn't know this. So when I got to the Catskills, I met Cos, God rest him, and Marnie and Camille and Tom Patsy and Jay Bright and a few of the other people that were there. And then I met Mike. Mike was smaller than me, younger than me. And he spoke with a little bit of a lisp. So I thought, I'm going to batter you. (laughs) 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 Was I wrong? But he was so nice. He welcomed me. He embraced me. And he was fascinated with the history of Irish boxing. He loved the relationship that... Mr. Eastwood had with Barry McGuigan at the time, who I went to go professional with him years later. He loved that relationship. It was like a father and son relationship at the time. And he had that relationship with Cuss. And he was so warming and welcoming. Took me to the top of the house. He lived at the top of the house. And he had all the old senior reels of fights. Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, who was management team, they, they had access to the biggest library in the world of fight footage and to me, there's only so much boxing you can watch. But to mm. Mike Tyson, there wasn't enough. He used to sit and watch hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. And he used to say to me, Joe, if that left hook had landed, that would have changed the whole history of that weight division. Mike was so engrossed in the sport. Now I love the sport, but not as much as he loved the sport. He was so devoted to the sport. He loved it. But what I didn't realise at the time was the humble beginnings... And as I spoke earlier on, all fighters have humble beginnings, but some fighters have more humble beginnings than others. And Mike Tyson's introduction into the world wasn't a very nice introduction. He was running wild on the streets of Brownsville. Mm. Now, Brownsville in Brooklyn isn't a particularly nice area. I won't slate it, but it's not a particularly nice area. And Mike, as a 10-year-old child, was running wild on them streets, trying to fend for himself, trying to make ends meet. I had hard times. My times were blissful compared to the times Mike Tyson had. Even with all his success and all his achievements in life, 
I still wouldn't want to visit the drugs into this world. I'm going to tell you the story now in a second. That this story, this, 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 this I'll tell you now, I'll tell you the story now actually. Mike Tyson used to speak to my mum on the phone, regular. Now I used to get battered by Mike. First I was going to ask, what was it like when you, the first time you got in the ring with him? I'll tell you this now, right? When we, we, we met and we became friends and, and, and the next morning jogged together and travelled on the minibus to the gym. Before we got onto the minibus, I saw all these big powerful men appear. And I thought, we're two boys, we're going to box together. And these powerful men are going to box together. Little did I know that these men were the men that were going to spar with Mike. They were men like walking to the gallows. The heads were on the chest, they looked so solemn and sad. And I thought, I'm happy, I feel confident, I've got the measure of this kid. I'm bigger than him I'm older than him I had a lot more amateur fights than him travelled on the minibus I was so calm and relaxed and confident <laughs> I know I know but these were all so sad and they were all they, were, they knew what was coming stupid Paddy didn't know what was coming right? I didn't know anyway when we got to the gym, I was comfortable, I was relaxed, I was put my bandages on, I warmed up, and these guys were all sitting there like this. <laughs> I couldn't understand what it was all about. But then, Kush said, right, glove up, we've warmed up, we're getting ready to spar. I looked around, and Mike was in the ring, pacing the ring, and he had his shirt off at that stage. And his physique at 17, his chest, his neck, his biceps, his triceps, his back, his body was incredible for 17 years of age. It would just look, he looked like the lion walking in a cage in the boxing ring up and down. Cos pointed to one of the big men to get in. Mike knocked him out, knocked him spark out. Knocked <laughs> him spark out. The guy hit the deck, was unconscious before he hit the deck. And I tell people, I shit myself at that moment. <laughs> I tell people I ruined a good pair of underpants at that moment. Of time, you know? I, I have no shame to say it. I thought there's no way a 17 year old boy should have that power. No. Two more got in, knocked both of them out. I was number four. I got battered from pillar to post. I was battered for three minutes. Smashed the bits. But I lasted three minutes. Longer than the three previous men that got in. I got out, a couple more got in, they stayed on their feet. I was back in again. Eight minutes later, I took another three minutes beating because I did six minutes with him that day. But the madness in me, because I believe the fight, you've got to have a little bit of madness in you, you know. Yeah. And I had a little bit of madness in me. And I believed I would get the better of him one of these days. I never did, you know. People say to me, and they ask me all the time, did you ever hurt Mike Tyson? I said, I hurt Mike Tyson every time we sparred. His knuckles were in bits. <laughs> <laughs> I hurt his knuckles. He battered me for nearly two years. Mm. But I'm very proud to say I never hit the deck. He made me cry loads of times, hospitalised me a couple of times. What? But, yeah, I went to hospital one time, my headgear was on. My head's swelled up. I had to enter the, enter the casualty with my headgear on. And um, I was an ambassador for the Midlands Air Ambulance. And I spoke this at the Midlands Air Ambulance Awards dinner. I said, the way an ambulance gets to uh, to accidents and gets victims of accidents to hospitals very, very quick. When I had to go to hospital from the Catskills, I had to go in a car. I wish there was an air ambulance then to get me to the hospital quicker, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it was, it was uh, hard, but it made me the man I am today, you know? Every fight I had helped me become the man I am today. Mm. You know, I speak to a lot of men that I fought. Bobby Wells, I boxed against England. He was ABA champion. 
If you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a thousand people now, and we selected 10 of the hardest-hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests. Those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption, John Elite, Mafia Hitman for the Gambino Crime Family, Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison, Ian Blink McDonald, £6 million bank robber, Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax, John Lawson, the hit team commander, David Macmillan, international smuggler's Thai death row prison escape, John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootout and escape, Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas. And Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers. He went on to win the Olympic bronze medal. He helped me become the man I am today. Cahill Ryan, he was head doorman in the nightclub that I worked in. We battered each other in the All-Ireland Finals. Then went to work on the nightclub that night. Or busted mm-hmm. up. People looking at us going, there must have been a bad fight tonight. He helped me become the man I am today. And every man that I shared the ring with has helped me become the man I am today. You know, one of the guys that phoned me earlier on today, Pat Pasley, is a barrister. He trains barristers now. I used to spar with him when we were kids, and they all helped me. They 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 helped me through this journey. You know, the beatings. Some days I'd get the better of them. Other days, others would get the better of me. With Mike Tyson, I never got the better of him. He battered me for two years, but he helped me because in my mind I believed, and there's a lot of it's psychological warfare. I believed that if I could take Mike Tyson's punishment, I could take anybody's punishment. And when I got the opportunity to fight Lennox Lewis. I got beaten by a, a man in the New York Golden Gloves called um, Sinclair Bab. Sinclair Bab beat me in the New York Golden Gloves. I won a bronze medal in the Empire Games. I won the New York State Golden Gloves. But Sinclair Bab beat me in the New York City Golden Gloves. He went on to win the New York City Golden Gloves. He boxed in the American Championships. And he boxed a man in the American Championships called Camulo Doom. And Camulo Doom won the American title. So I lost to a man... The lost to eventual American champ, the eventual American champion. Well, Camulo Doom, he boxed against Canada, and he got knocked out by Lennox Lewis. Lennox Lewis was the number two in the world when I boxed him in 1985. It was the New York All Stars, New York State and New York City against the Canadian All Stars. The New York star at the time was a man called Frankie Lyles. He went on to win the world welterweight title. I shared a room with Frankie when we trained in the Olympic Training Center in Lake Lake Placid to prepare for the tournament against the Canadians. So I shared a room with Frankie. He was from Syracuse. And a great guy. Like I said, he went on to win the World Super Middleweight title. And Lennox Lewis was the star of the American team. Or sorry, the star of the Canadian team who went on to win the World title. So the two stars went on to shine bright. But they couldn't get anybody to box Lennox Lewis because the New York champion had been knocked out by the man that got knocked out on a full international, Canada versus America, so the American champion had been knocked out by Lennox Lewis and the New York champion had been knocked out by the American champion. So they were struggling to get a champion, uh, a fighter to fight Lennox Lewis. So I said, I'll fight him. They said, Joe, you've been beaten by the man that got knocked out by the man that Lennox Lewis knocked out. I said, yeah, but he didn't knock me out. I said, I, I, I've took Mike Tyson's punishment. I will take Lennox Lewis's punishment. 
Ana tiedä, kun päättyy paljon lennoksi Well, it was no shame. I stayed on my feet. I lost on points. You know, the good chin. You know, and uh, Lennox battered me. But not many can say they've been battered by yeah. Lennox. No, but stayed on my feet. Lennox, was on my <laughs> Mike Tyson. I was very proud. No. Very proud man. To, to, people say, you've milked it, Joe. Yes, I've milked it. I'll continue to milk it. <laughs> because I've earned the right to yes. milk it. Yeah. I got battered by Lennox Lewis. And I got battered by Mike Tyson. Mm. But I stayed on my feet. So I've every right to boast about it. Mm. I didn't beat them. I wasn't in their league. They were leagues above me. And you survived the battle of the pub? Survived mm, the battle yeah, of the pub, yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, I've survived a lot of hardship in my life, you know. You said Mike was on the phone to your mum a bit. Oh, Mike used to speak to my mum all the time. And she used to say, oh, Mike, thank you so much for looking after my son, Joe. He was battering me week in, week out. <laughs> but I was getting minded. Mm-hmm. Cuss minded me. Camille minded me. Marnie minded me. Jay minded mm-hmm. me. Tom minded me. Mm-hmm. You know, and and and... It was it was a nice place to be in the Catskills. Rip Van Winkle, they say, slept for 20 years up there. It was very tranquil and peaceful. The only time that it was violent was when we were sparring. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it was beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. I went to live in Newcastle for a while. I lived in Newcastle with the Hallett family. And Mr. Hallett, big Paddy Hallett, he's dead now, God rest him. Him and his wife, Margaret, they minded me when I lived in Newcastle. I boxed one of their sons, Michael. I sparred with the other son, Tony. And... I, 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 I was mind does in the boxing world it's the most cosmopolitan sport in the world you go to the remotest parts of Africa the remotest parts of Asia there might not be kicking a soccer ball or there might not be bouncing a basketball but to be a kid punching the bag it's the most cosmopolitan sport in the world and the friendship and the respect and the love amongst the fight world fighters managers trainers there's a great camaraderie and friendship and you get minded you know, mm. and I've been minded everywhere I've went through the boxing. But with 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 my time in the Catskills, it was as good as my time in, in Newcastle, as good as my time in, in Denmark, as good as my time in Germany, in the boxing camps, you know. What about Don King? I won't mm. talk about him. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of parasites in boxing. There's a lot of people I won't mention any names, but a lot of people that treat fighters as a piece of meat. Mm. You know, and Fighters aren't a piece of meat, you know. Fighters are human beings and they deserve to be treated as human beings deserve to be treated, you know. Not like a commodity, not like a a piece of meat. And sadly, some of the management, some of the promoters treat fighters like pieces of meat. Mm. And I, I, I don't think that's nice. Were you by any chance inspired by the Rocky movies? I love Rocky movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Sylvester Stallone. I think it's great. My friends yeah. are working. Mm. I have a friend, Eddie Hall, is working on the Expendables movie at the moment. Wow. I saw a, 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 um, Eddie's the world's strongest man. Yeah. And I met Eddie through my friend Lee. Mm. Lee has a, a business in Stoke called Low Cost Roofing. And Lee's an ex-soldier. He, he, he's an ex-squaddie and uh, he employs a lot of ex-squaddies. And uh, Low Cost Roof in Stoke, a fantastic friend of mine. And he introduced me to Eddie Hall. I'm a massive fan of Eddie mm. Hall. And Eddie's in the new Expendable movies. And I watched him with Sylvester Stallone doing a shout out to Tyson Fury. And it was brilliant, right? Mm. And um, yeah, Sylvester Stallone, the Rocky stories, the Rocky films, amazing. Favourite <laughs> Rocky movie fight? Do you know Mr. something? Mr. T. Club Alain. 
Club Alain, Mr. T was Club Alain. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, you asked me anything. Oh, Dolph Lundgren. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, he was, uh, Dolph Lundgren was uh, Ivan Drago. That's it, yeah. And yeah. then uh, the first one, the first one, um, do you know something? People don't understand this. You know, the Rocky story is actually based on a true story. Was it? Yes. Listen to this, that. right? Yeah. There was a man called, when, when Muhammad Ali won the world title, Muhammad Ali was going to do a tour of America, the 50-state tour of America. He was going to fight the state champions. And some Amadan said, we're going to call it the Bummermont Tour. How dare he call fighters bums, right? And you couldn't, you couldn't have a title like that, the Bummermont Tour. Mike, Muhammad Ali was going to fight the state champions. And this Amadan was calling these fighters, the state champions, bums, right? I'm glad they didn't use that title. But Muhammad Ali was going to fight the state champion every month for 50 months. Atlantic City, Jersey, was the capital of boxing at the time. Vegas has since become the capital of boxing. So they were going to fight the New Jersey state champion in Atlantic City. Now, the New Jersey state champion at the time was a man called Chuck Webner from Bayonne, New Jersey. They called him the Bayonne Bleeder because he used to cut like Sir Henry Cooper used to cut. But he was a proud warrior. And he got the opportunity of a lifetime to fight as the state champion, to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. And he went in and he fought like a man possessed. He fought like a Trojan. He fought like a gladiator. But that's what boxers are. Boxers are modern day Trojans, modern day gladiators. And he gave Muhammad Ali one hell of a fight. Mm. Muhammad Ali said, I can't do this every month. I couldn't fight a man like this every month. He said, it stopped. The tour has stopped. One fight into a 55 tour was stopped. Anyway, Chuck Webner wrote a script called The Rocky Script. Sylvester Stallone was his friend. Sylvester Stallone was doing bit parts in films at the time. And Chuck Webner went to the, to the execs of Hollywood and he said, I've got this script and I want you to read the script. Chuck Webner, Rocky, Apollo Creed, Muhammad Ali. And that was based wow. on a true story. The execs said, we love the story. We love it. We'll buy it off you. But we want so-and-so to play Rocky. Joe Webner said, no, no, my friend Sylvester Stallone is playing Rocky. He said, we'll give you more. No, no, my friend Sylvester Stallone is playing Rocky. He wouldn't give in to the... And he needed the money until his friend Rocky got accepted to play the part. And then it won the Academy Award for the music because the mm. music and the Rocky... I live in America. Oh. <laughs> That music, Shooting that, the pigeon. Listen, that music, that music is iconic. Yeah, the Rocky yeah, yeah. theme song is iconic. Oh, it you is, know? Yeah. yeah. I trained to that music. Yeah. All fighters all over the world have trained to that music. Come out to it. Yeah. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, Sylvester Stallone has helped with that film so many fighters. Yeah. And not just, not just fighters, but in life. Stallone, Rocky, the underdog. Because there's so many underdogs mm. in all walks of life. And Rocky was the underdog. Yeah. And he beat Apollo Creed to win the title. Then he beat Ivan Drago. Then he beat Club Lang. Then he beat Mason Dixie. Then he beat Tommy Gun. He beat them all. <laughs> Rocky <laughs> is Rocky is an inspirational man. Yes. You know, so no matter what you're doing in life, you need inspiration. Mm. And if you can draw inspiration from any particular person. I talk about Michael Watson. Michael Watson, to me, is one of the greatest human beings. I idolise Muhammad Ali. I adore Muhammad Ali. God rest him. Heaven has gained what we've lost, right? 
Muhammad Ali was, to me, the greatest man to enter a boxing ring, one of the greatest men to enter the world. I used to run Ali Shuffle. But there's certain individuals alongside Muhammad Ali that need that praise. Michael Watson. Because I tell you about Michael Watson. Michael Watson was a man that sustained a bad, bad injury in boxing. Mm. And he survived. But they said he might never walk again. The chances are he will never walk again. Mm. Blessings of God. He fought and he fought and he fought and he walked again. He walked the London Marathon. It took him four days to walk the London Marathon. They say great men walk on the moon. The first man to walk on the moon was... Um, who was Neil the first? Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Yeah. So Neil Armstrong, they say, is a great man that he walked on the moon. To me, that's great technology. I could walk on the moon if they brought me <laughs> a rock. If that rock was big enough to bring me to the moon. You know, I could walk on the moon. That's great technology. You know, that's not a great man. That's great technology. Because any man could have sat in Neil Armstrong's seat. And any man could have stepped down off the rock and onto the moon. If they'd have brought him to the moon. But a man that walks, and I'm taking nothing away from Neil Armstrong. Right? I'm just saying, a man that walks when they say mm. is never going to walk again. That's a great man. Mm -hmm. And Michael Watson is one of them men because they said he would never walk again. He walked the London Marathon. Four days it took him, but he walked the London Marathon. Yeah. I did a dinner, a LIBA, London Xboxers Association dinner. And Michael Watson and Sir Henry Cooper were the guest speakers. God rest Sir Henry Cooper. And I was in a room full of Xboxers, British, European, Commonwealth, world champions and sparring partners and journeymen. The room was full of tough guys and women. And Mark Galt was in the room and I didn't realise who he was. And Sir Henry Cooper spoke. He said, we've got a young boxer in the room that sustained the same injuries that Michael Watson sustained. And he's here tonight with us. And we would like to call Mark Galt to the microphone. Well, Mark Galt took 10 minutes to walk twice the length of this room with his mother and father either side of him. Every step that he took, you could see the determination and the pain in his face as he took them steps. Mm. And I was with friends of mine, Dave Lovell, Paul Norton, Christian Brady. We were watching this, you know, three Xboxes, friends of mine, that we travelled down from Birmingham to watch this event. And every boxer in that room was willing this man to take them steps. And as he was taking them steps, Michael Watson said the words, warrior. And I, I was like, don't cry, Joe. Oh. Don't cry. Because if I, if I, I was fighting back them tears. Mm. Every man and woman in that room was fighting back the tears. Mm. Because if one person in that room had a cried, there'd have been a flood. <laughs> right? But Set Mark Gold made it to the microphone. And Mark Gold's mother took the microphone. Mm. And she said, Michael... Michael Watson, she said, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. She said, because my, my boy sustained the same injuries that you sustained. And they told him he would never walk again. The same as they told you, you, you would never walk again. Mm -hmm. She said, but you walked and you've inspired my boy to walk. And you're able to talk. And in time, my boy will be able to talk. And I told Michael this many times, he's my friend. I said, you've inspired so many people around the world. You've touched mm. so many people without physically touching them. You've reached out and given them hope, <laughs> you know, and just well, an amazing human being, yeah. you know. And there is certain people in life that are like that, you know. And boxing was privileged to have Muhammad Ali and privileged to have Michael Watson, mm. you know. But with Mike Tyson, he's the same. Mike Tyson is a man that has come from, from such humble beginnings and aspired... Yes, he's made mistakes 
as it says in the Bible, that he has done no evil, cast the first stone. We've all made the mistakes in life, you know, and Mike has made mistakes. He's, he's not a machine. He's not conditioned not to make mistakes. And he has achieved and inspired so many people as well because he's come from such humble beginnings. When he used to speak to my mum on the phone, getting back to this, I'm just going to tell you this story. My mum used to say, oh, Mike, thank you for looking after my son. He was battering me to a pulp. And for 22 years, she spoke to him on the phone and she'd never met him. And this particular day, Mike said to me, how's your mother doing, Joe? I said, she's not so good, Mike. I said, she's had a lump removed from her throat. She's had several stitches put into her neck. Worried about it being cancer because she's a heavy smoker. My uncle Brian, my mum's brother, died of cancer, God rest him. And I said, we are worried. He said, let's go and visit your mum, Joe. So we landed in Dublin, me, Mike, Scott Welch, the former British and Commonwealth heavyweight champion who fought for the world heavyweight title against Henry Ackham one day on the Tyson Holyfield undercard. Came close to winning the world title, Scott did. Fantastic guy. That's him in Snatch. He fights Brad Pitt in Snatch. Oh, wow. Brad Pitt knocks him out in Snatch. <laughs> and I used to joke with Scott. I said, you fought for the world heavyweight title. You went 12 rounds for the world heavyweight title. Brad Pitt knocks you out. <laughs> now I'm getting knocked out every week in your films. Anyway, we've landed in Dublin. Hysteria. Crazy. Dublin was, 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 oh my God, euphoric. Because Mike Tyson was landing in Dublin. And I, I walked through Dublin Airport, so proud, walking alongside Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we drove to the housing estate where I lived on, my mum had been released from hospital. There was the uh, um, the bug, the, uh, I don't know, what did they call that? There was a bug in the hospital anyway that it was very bad. And they were worried about my mum's age, so they, uh, they let her release from hospital to go and stay in her sister's house. And um, we went to visit her in her sister's house. So we drove onto the estate that I'd lived on, and we went into my auntie's house. And Mike Tyson embraced my mum in his arms. This is a fragile woman. This is a man that can break bones with punches. Embracing oh. a fragile woman. And it was so lovely to see. And they, were, they spoke. Like as I said, they've been speaking on and off for 22 years. And they spoke about their birthdays. Now my mum's birthday is the 12th of July. Mike's birthday is the 30th of June. They're both of the same birth sign, cancer. Mm -hmm. And my mum was chatting to him. And Mike said, Mrs. Egan, he said, I remember on my 18th birthday. Now I was with Mike when we were 17. He said, I remember on my 18th birthday. It just was 22 years previous. He said, you sent me birthday presents. He said, you sent over a shoebox with some potato chips, Irish potato crisps. He said, some money in an envelope. It would have been very little money. And some sweatshirts. Oh. It would have been secondhand sweatshirts. And my mum said to Mike, you remember that, 22 years previous. He said, Mrs. Egan, he said, very few people have given me anything in my life. He said, yes, I remember that. Scott Welch got choked up. He had to leave the room. Mm. I had no control of my tears at that I broke down crying. I bet. My mum and Mike, they embraced each other. And Mike looked at me and excused my language. He said, Joe, motherfucker, you're always crying. <laughs> he made me cry so many times. But what I, what I loved about that moment in time all right, it made me cry. But this man could have been a billionaire athlete. This man, the world was at his feet. And he remembered 22 years previous, a couple of packets of crisps, a couple of pounds in an envelope, and a couple of second-hand sweatshirts. I can't remember what I got 22 years ago. Can you remember what you got 22 years ago for Christ a present? No. Mike Tyson remembered that, and it meant so much to him. And that puts it all into perspective, because if you think that that little something meant so much, you know, and... Even with all his successes in life, he still was able to remember that. 
That's the great thing about the man, you know. Mm. And still to this day, I'm very proud to say he's my friend. You know, I I I I talk about him fondly. And as I said earlier on, yeah, I brag about being able to stay on my feet with him <laughs> and Lennox Lewis, but I've earned the right yeah. to brag. You know, I'm not big-headed, but I brag about that. That's such a powerful story to end it on. Joe, really appreciate you being with us today. Oh. Is there anything you'd oh, like yeah. to tell to the viewers? Because uh, you're so inspirational, like people around the world, perhaps watching as young people. Thank you for taking an interest in me. I appreciate, I get, um, I'm not academic or anything like that. I'm not good with with emails and stuff. I, I, I joked with Sean and Jen earlier on. I'm old school. <laughs> Smoke signals and pigeon post. Yeah. But I get emails. My agents that take care of a lot of things for me. You know, I get emails and compliments from all around the world. And thank you for taking an interest in my life. And listen, just, just try to be the best you can be. And try to be helpful and decent to others people because we share this planet you know we're we're not we're not here for a long time we're here for the grace of god and we share this planet and we should muhammad ali once said and i love this he said i wish people could love each other as much as they loved him mm. and i wish we did love each other the way muhammad ali's fans loved him wow. you know mm. because that 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 to me said it all you know because we share this planet and we should share it and be good to each other be kind to each other, look after the planet, look after the animals on the planet, they share the planet with us, and just try to be the best you can possibly be. And anyone watching this, God bless you all, and thank you for taking an interest in me. Huge uh, thank you for coming on. So. Yes, thank Sean, you. Jen, thank thank you. you. On that note of love, give us a hug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, God, I'm wrecking you. It's all right.